When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and this is our third and final week of choir practice. Or maybe this is audition rehearsal. Because if we are auditioning for the heavenly choir, there's no better way to prepare for that than by studying the Psalms. Remember that the Song of the Righteous is a prayer unto me, and it's the song of the heart that the Lord delights in. So no worries about vocal quality. Uh, if you're worried about making the, making the cut, when I was in college, I dreamed of being part of the OU's Men's Chorus. It's such an incredible group of singers. And I went and auditioned before the incredible Mac Wilberg, who is now the main conductor for the Tabernacle Choir on Temple Square. Uh, I guess it was one of the thrills of my singing career, short-lived as it's been, to sing into the open ear of Mac Wilberg. I obviously didn't sing it well enough for him to let me into the choir. Uh, oh well, um, my younger brother ma uh, made it past that hurdle, uh, which was no surprise since he's a better singer than I am anyway. But to think of, rather than his ear in my mouth, if he could have put his ear next to my heart and just listen to me feel the message behind the songs that we're singing, the, the spirit behind the songs, the hymns, there's power there. And despite my lack of vocal quality, I am grateful for a heart that's in the right place and a desire simply to raise my voice high that it might reach the heavens, as Enos said, not simply in prayer, but in a, a musical prayer, a song, a hymn, a psalm. And so as we finish the book of Psalms today, I pray that it will not be the end of our study of it. Uh, as I've said before, there are those out in the Christian world that turn to the Psalms as part of their prayer life and to put themselves into the proper spirit to be able to commune with heaven, they find the appropriate Psalm to, to help them see what real emotion, real worship looks like on the page in hopes that they can then translate it into the heart as they then raise their hearts and their voices to God. This is an incredible book of scripture, and I pray the last two weeks have been spiritually moving. I warned you from the beginning, this would be less about an intellectual exercise and more about a spiritual experience, and I pray that that has been the case for you. What I'd like us to ponder as we turn to Psalm 101 and then study the next 50 Psalms is a phrase, well, it's the title of the last book that Elder Neely Maxwell wrote. And I miss Elder Maxwell. Maxwell is my first son's middle name. Uh, and I love Elder Maxwell. Oh, my wife, I, I, I'll put it this way. I love Sister Maxwell because she kept my wife from holding out hope that she'd ever get to marry Elder Maxwell. Uh, I was definitely a distant second place in her mind and heart. Uh, but among the many books that he wrote, his very last one is called One More Strain of Praise. 
And it comes from the beautiful hymn, Sing We Now at Parting. Because Elder Maxwell knew that he was parting. As his life was coming to an end, he was grateful for the delay en route uh, and that he outlived the doctor's prognoses with his leukemia. But knowing that he was facing the end, he did want to give one more strain of praise. And, and that book, every title, every, excuse me, every chapter title is a different line from that beautiful hymn. And to think of ending, finishing your, your, your race and preparing yourself to go meet your maker in a psalm, in a hymn, and to take lines from it and put in perspective your own experience, your own, your own hopes, your own feelings, your own worship along the lines of a hymn. Do that as we study the Psalms. I pray that there have been Psalms and, and many of them that have struck a chord, pun intended, with your the deepest feelings of your soul. And if that's been the case, I hope that you will commit to memory, if, if not the entire psalm, at least the number of it, so you can go back to it anytime that you want to feel close to God. This incredible book of Scripture is meant to, to prepare us to be able to come to Him, not just at the, at, when we sing at parting, the way Elder Maxwell did, but as we try to sing at meeting, coming to meet our Father in Heaven. Well, let's begin. In Psalm 101, uh, if we pick up where we left off last week with the Thanksgiving Psalm, that great story about B.H. Roberts and the inspiration that came to him from Heavenly Father about that, uh, we shift gears somewhat, and rather than thanking for all that God has done in Psalm 100, in Psalm 101 we now see a Psalm of David as he is committing himself to execute justice as a righteous king. This was most likely recited by him, uh, whether David or other successors, in some kind of almost an inaugural address, promising the people and God that he would do his very best to, to live up to divine expectations. He makes 12 promises here, and that seems to be fitting as he is about to rule over united Israel with its 12 tribes. In verse 1, he says, I will sing of mercy and judgment. Unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. Oh, singing means rejoicing in all of God's attributes. I think it, we find it easy to sing of his mercy, and perhaps a little harder to sing of his judgment. And yet if we understand the importance of even God proving those contraries, and if we recognize that we are, as, we are saved as much by God's justice as by his mercy, and that by his perfect judgment in striking the proper balance all the way through, then I pray that we will be able to sing to God of both, his just, both of his mercy and of his judgment. In verse 2, I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. And he's making commitments to God and to the people. And what better to have a king that, that would behave wisely and perfectly as much as possible. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me, he asks. I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I love that this desire for wisdom and perfection in the way he lived wasn't just at the, at the palace in front of the people, but even in his home, as he's walking within it, wanting to maintain that perfect heart. It's one thing to try to be righteous publicly. It's an, an entirely different thing to strive for righteousness privately. When only God is aware 
But then again, since it's his opinion that matters most, perhaps that's the most important place to strive for wise perfection. Verse 3, David goes on, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Talk about avoiding the sight, which then triggers the thought, which then encourages the action. Oh, if only he had been able to control eye and then thought and then action with Bathsheba. He goes on, I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. And that's a great description of how we ought to feel about wicked influences. That they are, we might not remain untouched by them, but hopefully we, we don't let them stick. Okay, And so when he mentions that these wicked things, that these wicked works will not cleave to him, imagine being clean enough and worthy enough or turning to the living water often enough that those kinds of things wash off us and they don't tend to stick. In verse 4 and 5, a froward heart, and we would say a crooked heart, shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privily or privately slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. Now, for a king, that's important. That he's making sure he keeps good company. And that those who might advise him, those with whom he's working diplomatically, militarily, you name it, he's not doing anything crookedly. He wants that to depart. To the point of, I don't even want to know a wicked person. If you slander your neighbor, I'll cut you off. And if you're prideful, then I don't want you in my presence either. I remember having a stake president in Tennessee. Oh, he was so humble himself that pride, it couldn't, it couldn't coexist with him. And not just his own pride, which it seems that he had completely overcome, but the pride of others. So it's not just that David is trying to cast out the prideful, it's that he's trying to live in such a way that pride itself seems to evaporate whenever he's around. And that's the way that state president of mine was. It was a beautiful thing to see just anyone who came into his presence. You couldn't, you couldn't hold on to your pride when he was around. It just evaporated. In verse 6, Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land. Another important thing for a king to be doing. That they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. On the other hand, he that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. Again, this isn't just private or personal or in the house. This is the king at the, at the capital of his kingdom and wanting to make sure that the city of David remained the city of the Lord. That Zion would be of one heart and one mind and dwell in righteousness with no poor among them. And so to seek a community of righteousness, that's, that's what every righteous ruler will need to do. And all of us fellow citizens with the saints, it's what we should be striving for as well. If we ever hope to establish Zion, we'll have to reach that level of righteousness. Psalm 102 then, if you look at the superscription, it calls this a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and poureth out his complaint before the Lord. You ever been there? You ever needed to channel Psalm 102? If so, then let these words resonate. Verse 2, hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. 
Incline thine ear unto me. In the day when I call, answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke. My bones are burned as an hearth. My heart is smitten and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. Have you ever been so overwhelmed that it seems like God is far, far away from you? That your hope seemed to be going up in smoke. Well, good thing he changes ashes to beauty, right? Even to the point of forgetting to eat your bread. Have you ever lost your appetite? So sickened by all that you're going through? Or so stressed and busy that you don't even seem to have time to eat? That's how overwhelmed the psalmist is here. Which makes verse 12 and 13 all the more amazing. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever. And thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion. For the time to favor her. Yea, the set time is come. The psalmist, despite feeling overwhelmed with all of the pressures of life or the concerns of his soul, he knew that God would be there for him. He knew that God would endure forever. Remember every generation. And that as soon as the time came, the set time, all would be well for him personally as well as for Zion collectively. It's that last line that I find fascinating, though. The set time. It's come. As far as the psalmist is concerned, right now, it's go time. Can you please come forth out of your hiding place and come rescue us? If you remember the interesting question that when, when Jesus was casting out the devils in the New Testament, and these evil spirits said to Jesus, Have you come to torment us before the time? That's interesting. It's as if they knew there is a time where game over for us. There is a time when all evil will end, when Satan will be bound, when the millennial reign will have Christ at the helm, proclaiming peace be still to all of those overwhelmed souls that preceded him. To think about that day that's on its way, Again, that spells disaster for the evil spirits. Don't torment us before the time. We know we're ultimately going to lose. But in the meantime, can't we have some fun? Well, for us, I want playtime to be over for the adversary. And when that set time arrives, all will be well. If we can hold out for that, if we can simply... The fact that we know there's an end time and an end date for our struggles and our sufferings, ought to give us hope that we can hold on in the meantime. It ought to give us motivation to pray that the Lord will indeed hasten his work in its time. It seems, based on what apostles and prophets have been saying lately, that now is the time. They echo the psalmist, Yea, the set time is come, the time for the latter-day saints to live up to this latter day and fully live in a way that Zion can be built upon the earth so that Zion can be brought from above. If you notice verse 16 and 17, that seems to be the prayer. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. The destitute, that's among those overwhelmed that are offering this psalm. But to think about that, when the Lord shall build up Zion... Wait, I thought that's what we were supposed to do. It is, but there's definitely some synergy required. As we labor alongside the Lord to create His Zion people in His Zion place, 
at this set time, will we be prepared then for him to appear in his glory? This is Zion below preparing for the coming of Zion from above. This is Zion being built so that Zion can be brought as soon as we are ready for it. In verse 19, then he says, For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven did the Lord behold the earth. You sense the heavenly temple mirroring the earthly temple, Zion above, ready to meet Zion below. To hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem, when the people are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Are we getting closer and closer to every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus is the Christ? Are we gathering to Zion and to Jerusalem? Oh, those two church headquarters in the final day. To understand what we are trying to accomplish, old world as well as new, stick of Judah, stick of Ephraim. Oh, it's amazing to see Zion and Jerusalem preparing the earth for the coming of the Lord. We have our work cut out for us, so we better get after it. Despite all that we have to do, I think what gets in our way most is ourselves and our sins. And to become of one heart, one mind, to dwell in righteousness, to make sure there's no poor, we're going to have to repent of those sins and overcome them. Which is why, to me, Psalm 103 is so perfectly placed, because this is a masterpiece about God's mercy. Uh, we've seen many of those through, through our study of the book of Psalms. And this, as a Psalm of David, you can see why he would know so well what it feels like to plead with God for mercy. Notice how he does it in, in this Psalm. Verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. Did you catch that beautiful list of verbs there? As David is rejoicing in the mercies of God as evidenced by all that God has done for him in his life, that he forgives, that was huge for David. Remember last week, Psalm 51? that he heals, that he redeems, that he crowns, that he satisfies, that he meets every single need. In fact, notice how often the word all is mentioned in that passage. He forgives all of your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. Whatever it is that you need, God can and will provide it. Trust in him. And most of all, don't just see all that God does for us. See the attributes of God that are behind all of those actions. What he does is a function of who he is. And so if we see all of those benefits, as David describes them, then I pray we will recognize the Lord and want to bless him for all that he does in blessing us. In verse 8, David goes on, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. And this is coming from someone who did feel the righteous indignation of God and was devastated by it, but it didn't last forever. And for him to recognize, again, this is the God of the Old Testament that people seem to accuse of being all justice and no mercy. 
the more I've been studying the Old Testament this year with all of you, the more I'm convinced that anyone who keeps saying that isn't studying their Old Testament and that we need to spend more time. The Psalms is a great place to do it, to recognize how his people recognized his attributes. Chief among them, that list from David, merciful, gracious, plenteous in those, in those gracious gifts. In verse 10, he says, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquity. Remember that beautiful phrase we saw back in Ezra? Thou hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve. I get that sense from David here. He hasn't dealt with us after our sin. It's almost a sense of, wait, you, all those benefits I mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, I don't deserve any of them. Uh, I don't know if this is a case of mistaken identity and you're, you're thinking of me as, as someone else, someone actually deserving of these things. And to that, I think the Lord would say, oh no, I, I got the right person. Deserving of things? All the benefits would end up with, would, would remain with me then. And, and what's the fun in that? I want to be able to shower these gift, gifts upon you. I am plenteous in mercy after all, and therefore I cannot forever deal with you after your sins. The moment you begin to repent, oh, mercy begins to flow. In fact, that's what mercy is. It's not getting what we deserve. It's not being dealt with after our sins. And if we will plead with God for that mercy, he will give it to us. In fact, in, in separating us from our sins, notice what he says next. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. Think of mercy from heaven infinitely higher than any kind of justice that we try to administer here on earth. Again, that's why it doesn't make sense to David or to any of the rest of us. Why aren't you dealing with us according to our sins? How can you treat us so kindly? Well, it's because I see things from this perspective. From, a, from such a higher elevation than you mortals do. I can, I, can be, I can afford to be merciful as a result. We'll actually see that again more famously in Isaiah 55, when he says that God's ways are higher than our ways. Now that is true across the board in, in every aspect of life. But specifically, my ways are higher than your ways because my heart is more merciful than yours is. And if you are having a hard time accepting my forgiveness, then climb a little higher and come to see things from my perspective. And you will be merciful, more merciful to yourself and more merciful to those around you, recognizing just how low we happen to live in terms of what we're up against, in terms of the fallen flesh, in terms of the mortal condition, and for God to have a higher perspective on that than we do is incredibly reassuring. Now that's the vertical dimension. That's the up and down, the high and low. Then he shifts things to a horizontal, and I love what he says next. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Isn't there an old saying that east is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet? Think about what he's saying. You and your sins, they seem to be part and parcel. They're us, and, they're, and it's what we're made of, and it's, it's this 
the, the stains upon our own garments, and yet for God to remove them? Okay, how far? As far away as the east is from the west. Well, never the twain shall meet. Exactly. And you never have to meet those sins again. You keep heading in my direction. I'll keep sending your sins in the opposite direction. And don't worry, they'll never come back around the other side. I actually struck this, or this strikes me sometimes I'm driving around Utah. The way Utah is set up city-wise is typically there's a temple in the middle or a tabernacle of each community, and then you grow out from there. And there's first north and second north and third east and fourth east and so on. And you can, it's, it's hard to get lost in Utah that way. It's, it's kind of nice. But what's interesting about it is as cities and communities have grown, to the point that their borders begin to touch and then overlap, every once, every once in a while you will see a, a street sign that has two labels. One from the city to the east, that this street is now uh, you know, 40 blocks to the west of, of center. And then the other sign on the same street from the city to the west, which means this is now the eastern edge of this city. So what's, what's funny about it is you look at the same sign and it's things like 4,000 west and 3,800 east. And you're looking at it going, uh-oh, east and west have met. <laughs> and there they are. It's the same street as the borders have converged. Well, there will not be that problem on Judgment Day. Uh, and if you've been heading east and your sins have been heading west or vice versa, don't worry. There is no intersection out there with the dual sign where you and your sins somehow have come back together again. And east and west have met. In reality, they don't. And no matter where you're coming from, your sins can be far, far away through repentance and the grace of God. I love that. In verse 13, he says, Like as a father pitieth his children. Now we're starting to see again from that elevated angle, that high perspective of God, how it is that he cannot treat us according to our sins, how he can be so merciful. It's because of that fatherly pity. It's that paternal regard, as Joseph Smith once called it. So like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. You see, from his perspective, repentance is relational. It's not transactional. It's not a matter of we check out enough boxes and do enough things and all of a sudden it, it equals out the scales. No, it's that he is a father who loves his children, who pities us as he sees all that we're going through and as a result is moved to mercy out of his fatherly love. The next verse, it, it becomes even more beautiful the way he puts it. For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. Do you remember last week we talked about this when it came, comes to mental illness and dealing with deep depression and God understanding where we're coming from? We talked about knowing someone's diagnosis and as a result having so much more understanding for them because we have a glimpse of what they're going through. Well, God has far more than a glimpse. He understands it perfectly. That was part of the empathy that grew out of the atonement. That was part of the compassion that comes as a result of the condescension. And so for Jesus especially, to be able to look at us in our sinfulness, 
and be able for him to be able to say, I know what you're made of. I understand your frame. I have not lost sight of your diagnosis, which happens to be dust all the way down. If God remembers that we're dust, if he keeps in mind that, that diagnosis, then no wonder he can be patient with us in our struggles. I remember once, I hope my son will forgive me for sharing this, but he was very young, so far less accountable. So take this with a grain of salt. But he was angry at me, and he made sure I knew it. And he was just yelling and screaming, and I was trying to stay with him to make sure that he'd be safe and, and not do anything drastic. And he just was, oh, get out of my room and get out of my life. And so I just stayed out in the hallway. I knew his diagnosis, and I could be understanding. And I sat there just listening, hoping that he would calm down and fall asleep. He did, although not before he, he shoved a piece of paper under his door. He must have known I was still out there. It was a drawing uh, and, a, and a note. The note said that I was the king of hell. Uh, okay. Um, well, at least it's, uh, he's, he was becoming, becoming more doctrinal there, at least more theological. Before that, he was just, I hate you, I hate you. But then it was, you're the king of hell and you're worse than the devil. I'm like, okay, at least we're getting scriptural. Uh, but as he slipped that note under, and there was a, it was a picture of me and the devil. And there was a striking resemblance. You'd be amazed, uh, at least in my son's mind at the time. Well, like I said, he ultimately fell asleep. And the next, the next day was Sunday. I was on the stand in the bishopric, and th he was a fairly new deacon passing the sacrament. And thankfully, that cloud of darkness had passed. And he was back to his normal, wonderful, wonderful self. And just wanting to do what's right and loving the opportunity to serve the Lord as, a, as an Aaronic priesthood holder. And there he was passing the sacrament and I looked down from the stand at him and, thought, and reviewed what had taken place the night before. And I, and I just smiled to myself and thought, you are a piece of work, <laughs> but I love you and you're making progress. And right as I said that to myself, I heard a, a second voice saying to me this time, Oh, Jared, you are a piece of work. But you're making progress. And I love you too. And it went from my paternal pity to a son whose diagnosis I knew to a much more glorious paternal pity. A Father in heaven who knows my frame, who remembers that I'm dust and is willing to work within it. It's amazing what he can do with dust. <laughs> look, at the, look at the earth, look at the, the universe, oh, look at the worth of a soul. And please rest assured that God is still molding you. And, and he revels in the process. It's our chance to get those divine fingerprints all over us and to feel him fashioning us into someone much more like him. He, he knows that we're a work in progress. And so he takes his time and I hope that we'll be patient with him and patient with ourselves. I get that sense from the end of this, of this chapter, if you look at 17 and 18. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children, 
to such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Our part is what he says at the end. Keep the commandments. More importantly, keep the covenant. The commandments are simply to reassure us that the covenant can hold. And the covenant is a relationship. That's why I said earlier that repentance is relational for the Lord. It's about maintaining our marriage to him. Right? He's the bridegroom. We are the bride. And for us to maintain that marriage, to keep that covenant, in my wife and I's case, when we do things inadvertently or without thinking that, that hurt one another, if we didn't keep the commandment of the marriage, we've still kept the covenant of the marriage. And that's what drives us to repent, to apologize, to try harder, to forgive one another. And that's the relationship, the covenant relationship we established when we were sealed in the temple. It's the covenant relationship that we create with God as we, as we take His name, Christ's name upon us. And if we will simply do our best to maintain that relationship, then what's the promise that He says at the beginning? My mercy will be there from everlasting to everlasting. It never runs out. There's no expiration date. I'm not going to reverse the statute of limitations and dredge up all your old sins and shove them in front of your face. No, I'm not keeping score like that. I, the Lord, remember them no more. It's from everlasting to everlasting. And then the other phrase, it's unto children's children. Oh, this is multi-generational covenant making and covenant keeping. This is going back to Elder Whitney's uh, comment about the tentacles of divine providence. That as we keep our covenants with God, how the chain holds generation by generation onto our children's children and on from there. Like I said, Psalm 103 is an absolute masterpiece. And maybe if you've sinned, start with Psalm 51 and get a sense of godly sorrow. Then go to Psalm 103 and recognize the mercy of our loving Lord of our Father in heaven, and then go on and praise him for the mercy that he bestows. That's the sense in Psalm 104. It's a song of praise to the creator of all things, including the creator of you. He says in verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great. Can you picture all of us together in sacrament meeting singing how great thou art? That's the sense of this psalm. He says, Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who coverest thyself with light as with a garment, who stretchest out the heavens like a curtain, who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind. Some beautiful poetic alliteration, thanks to our inspired King James translators there. The glory of creation speaks of the glory of its creator. There's beautiful imagery there, and so much of it is clothing imagery. Clothed with honor, covered with light, like a garment. And this is the same oh, creator who creates clothing for us as well. A covering of the atonement. Remember that word in Hebrew, the cover is to atone. The coat of skins given to Adam and Eve. And so that garment of light now that he wears is one he's willing to share with the rest of us. In verse 4, he maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire. 
Now, the first part of that is confusing. He makes his angels spirits. Well, angels, another way to translate that is messengers. And spirit is the same word for wind, for breath. And so if you think about making angels spirits, oh, I guess that fits. But translate it this way and it might make a little bit more sense. He makes his messengers like wind, which then forms the parallel to the following line. He makes his ministers like a flaming fire. So think about this. If God's ministers, if his messengers are like wind and fire, they're rushing forth to purify and to illuminate, to both cleanse and consume, going wherever the Lord sends them, wherever the, the, the wind listeth. Oh, it's an amazing thing to consider us being God's messengers and ministers and fire-like and wind-like are we going wherever the Lord wants us to go. The psalmist then continues glorying in all the wonders of creation and says in verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. Oh, the manifold works of God. There's his omnipotence. He can do anything. And it's in wisdom that he's done them. That's his omniscience. He's all-powerful and all-knowing. And why is he both of those things? Because he's all-loving. And he wants those works and that wisdom to, to exalt us, to bring us home. In verse 33, no wonder he, the psalmist concludes, I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. My meditation of him shall be sweet. I will be glad in the Lord. There's sweet, joyful thoughts. Meditation, thinking about God, which will make you want to sing praises to him as long as you live. I've mentioned Bernard of Clairvaux several times in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and go figure, he's in our hymn book. And so he resonates with ancient Israel's hymn book as well. But you remember that hymn that, that we have from him, Jesus, the very thought of thee. With sweetness fills my breast, he says. And that's the sense I get at the end of Psalm 104. My meditations of him shall be sweet. And honestly, the, the simple, the mere meditation, the, the, even just thinking about Jesus, has a sanctifying effect upon the mind. It purifies our, our perspective on things. It, it provides us the lens through which we should view the world and other people and ourselves in it. Oh, there's something sweet. There's something glad. There's something worth rejoicing about as we meditate on him. Psalm 105 is next. It's a hymn of praise to the God who chose Israel. And in verse 6, how's this for the audience? O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He hath remembered his covenant forever. It's that marriage that he made, I mentioned. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. What we saw earlier about righteousness unto children's children, that's nothing. Let's keep uh, stretching that out for a thousand generations. Which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant. 
And then through most of the rest of this psalm, he reviews the Abrahamic covenant, coming into the promised land, preserving them from their enemies, Joseph in Egypt, Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh, the plagues, the death of the firstborn, leading them through the wilderness, quails and manna, water from the rock. Oh, it's a beautiful history lesson. And who's the one person who lives long enough to be present from start to finish? God. The eternal God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, all of us. I mentioned this at the beginning of our year when we got to come to know Abraham and sense what the Abrahamic covenant is all about, that God made it personally with Abraham, but then renewed it specifically upon Isaac and then renewed it directly upon Jacob. And he wants to do the same with us. And for us to be able to step into that kind of relationship, we are the seed of Abraham. We are the children of Jacob. And I think we're well within still that thousand generations for us to understand that God is trying to collectively exalt us. We are his family. And that's why he did all that he did in the Old Testament. It's why he's done all that he's done ever since. That's the sense I get in verse 42 and 43 at the end of Psalm 105. Why so many miracles? Why such constant care? Here's why. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant, and he brought forth his people with joy and his chosen with gladness. Why all those miracles from Abraham all the way down? Because God made a promise and he delights in keeping it even when we haven't done as good a job keeping our end. That's the gladness, that's the joy that he brings in honoring the word he gave Abraham. In Psalm 106, we see a record of divine forgiveness. This is a storytelling poem, and it describes seven different scenes of sin and forgiveness. If you think of seven with days of creation, it's a number for totality and completeness and wholeness. And so picture complete forgiveness being hinted at in this beautiful psalm. In verse 4, he says, Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. O visit me with thy salvation, that I may see the good of thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory with thine inheritance. In the previous psalm, we saw the collective, the community, seed of Abraham, house of Israel. Here we're seeing it again, the chosen, the nation, thine inheritance, but what's he calling attention to? You have favor toward thy people. You bless them. You honor them. Who, you honor those who honor you. And so would people recognize something different about us? I would hope so. And specifically, do they see our good? Would they rejoice in the gladness that we feel as a nation, as God's holy people? And would they glory alongside us as part of the inheritance of God? I wonder about that. Uh, I, every once in a while, when I, when I commute on the train, I'll sometimes try to strike up conversations, especially with young adults, since I, fig I can picture them in my institute classes. And I remember one time on the train, sitting, uh, there were four of us, and I was the only old timer. Uh, and the three college students, and I asked them if they were all University of Utah students, and sure enough, they all were. 
uh, and I said, oh, I, I work up there. I teach at the Institute. Any of you guys ever been to the Institute? And one young man nodded his head, and the other two looked at me and just said, no, we're not members of your church. And I said, oh, that's okay. You don't have to be to come to the Institute. There's always food. You're welcome to come over and eat anytime you want. But it was interesting. I said, what, are you from Utah, though? And they said, yeah. I said, what was it like to, to grow up in Utah not as members of the church? And one young man said, oh, it was no big deal. Uh, I had good friends and they were fine. The other young woman looked at me and said, oh, you don't want to know. And that's when I said, oh, if you feel strongly about it, then I really do want to know. Uh, I, I grew up as a religious minority, and I know how that can be difficult sometimes, feeling like you don't fit in. What was your experience like? And as she described some of it, it was hard for her. I don't think she saw the good of God's chosen, and she certainly wasn't rejoicing in the gladness of the nation. She didn't feel any glory with God's inheritance and that's tragic. I try to explain some of the reasons why that we're not trying to ostracize. Sometimes we're just so busy with one another in a close-knit ward. But I did hear her and I tried to empathize with her feelings and validate her experience. And I was grateful by the end of the conversation. I sensed that she at least felt heard and recognized. But I do wonder, especially among in areas where we are the dominant religion. I pray that that verse can wake us up to being careful about how we treat other people so that they can feel our goodness and, and rejoice in it and glory alongside us, even if they don't choose to worship as we do. I think there's a lot of progress we could make. Not in terms of our doctrine. It's solid. It's incredible. It's inspired. But our culture, there may be a gap before that we need to, to pass, that we need to overcome so that people will truly come to understand what the gospel has done for us and what, and what we can do for others as a result, whether or not they ever want to accept the gospel themselves whether or not all of that was intended by that passage in the 106th Psalm, it was something that struck a chord with me, and I hope I can do better as a result. Later in this Psalm, it reviews more of the Exodus story. It's another history lesson here, the death of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. And then it says in verse 12, then believed they his words. They sang his praise. There's the song of Miriam or the song of the sea back in Exodus 15. But what happened next? They soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel. I'll talk about a quick descent into the pride cycle. But lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Interesting the way that's phrased. Because of their going through the pride cycle, because of them being delivered and rejoicing, that, but then starting to rest on their laurels, take God's grace for granted, and thinking all would be well regardless of how they lived. No, they forgot God's work in them. And they began to work against Him. And before long, they're falling back into old ways. But in terms of getting what they wanted, 
Remember that? We saw that back in, in Exodus and in Numbers, that they would beg for quail. And they got enough quail for it to come out of the nostrils. Oh, they wanted water, and sure enough, it began to flow, but there were some curses involved as well. It's interesting to think that that's often the case. God will give us our request, but it will, be, it will mean leanness to the soul. There's the lost 116 pages for Joseph Smith and Martin Harris, right? Uh, sometimes God will prosper us temporally, if that's what it is that we're really seeking but it will be a lean spiritual experience as a result. We need to trust that God knows what we really need and, and be content with that. Next, the psalm then reviews Israel's murmurings in the wilderness, the golden calf, uh, the story of Dathan and Abiram being swallowed up in the depths of the earth, and says in verse 23, Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses his chosen stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. Yea, they despised the pleasant land, they believed not his word. Despised the pleasant land? Oh no, we want the promised land. Then keep your promises. Because if you are not living God's promises, then the land will never be promised to you. You're despising the land. It's not, it's not going to be pleasant if it's not promised. But then that other phrase also about Moses, he stood before them in the breach. We saw that repeatedly when God, I think to test Moses more than anything, was suggesting, I'll just destroy them and start over with you. Did it with Adam, did it with Noah, we'll do it third time's the charm with you, Moses. And Moses every time comes through for Israel and pleads for another chance for Israel to come through for God. He stood in the breach for their sake which is another one of those things that makes Moses such a beautiful type and shadow of Jesus. He who stands in the breach for all of us. By the end of this psalm, he's then described continued murmuring, ongoing complaint, as well as Moses' punishment when he couldn't enter the promised land. I mean, it's a pretty long psalm, and it focuses mostly on Israel's frequent failings, but it does conclude like this, starting in verse 43. Many times did he deliver them. Despite of all that we've seen throughout this psalm, all the negatives of Israelite history, he delivered them. But they provoked him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. There's the pride cycle, downward slope. But then the upward, nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry and he remembered for them his covenant and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. Now what it says at the end there about God repenting, now yes, there's better ways to translate that. But there's an irony there that if God will, quote-unquote, repent of the punishment he was going to give us, then shouldn't we repent of the things we did to bring on that punishment to begin with? Oh, the multitude of his mercies are there to convince us that we can change. And if anything, like we saw with the story of the book of Judges, round after round of the pride cycle, and God forgiving them every time they were willing to change, he regarded their affliction, he saw what they were suffering, and he remembered them for his covenant. I promised Abraham I would for a thousand generations, and that's just the number to throw out there to say that it's limitless. That's what it means to, be, to have the multitude of mercy that God has for us. 
That's the message of Psalm 106. The message of Psalm 107, then, is one of thanksgiving, specifically for bringing the people back from exile in Babylon. This would have been a later dated psalm. But it builds on Psalm 105, where you chose Israel, and then 106, where you've forgiven them in the past, and now 107, thank you for forgiving us again now. In verse 1, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Oh, the gathering of Israel. Again, like I said, this is their coming out of exile in Babylon. Cyrus of Persia has come on board and said, you can go home. You can rebuild your temple. I'll even help. And talk about a cause to rejoice. They are coming from east and west and north and south. And that's just a preview of a much greater attraction in the last days, our days, as we are gathering Israel on both sides of the veil. No wonder there is cause for all to rejoice and specifically to rejoice in the goodness of God. The way he says it, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I mean, if we get to be part of this, if we have in any way felt gathered by God from our scattered state, and if we've ever been able to participate in anyone else's gathering, then we better say so. We better be able to raise our voices and rejoice. In verse 8, he says something that then he repeats in 15 and 21 and 31. This seems to be almost a chorus at the end of every verse. He says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Again, there's praising him for what he's done, his wonderful works, but also praising him for what he is, for his goodness, his innate, inherent goodness. No wonder this, that phrase keeps coming up over and over. It's as if they remember something else God has done, and they're like, oh yes, praise him for his goodness and for his wonderful works. Near the end of the chapter, he uses an interesting uh, metaphor. He speaks of those on ships that are in the sea during a time of intense storm. You could picture the apostles on the Sea of Galilee. And Master, care us not that we perish, right? How can you sleep at such a time like this? And, oh, no, I, I don't. We'll see that clearly said in a moment. But what he says here, verse 27 through 30, they reel to and fro. You starting to get a little seasick? They stagger like a drunken man. Oh, yep, yeah, I'm about to fall overboard. I can't even see straight. They are at their wit's end. And for... A, a sailor to feel that way, that's what the, the way the apostles were. We're going to die here, despite the fact that we grew up on this lake. They're at their wit's end. So what do you do? Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad because they be quiet. So he bringeth them unto their desired haven. Can you sense the peace be still hinted at there? Honestly, it makes me wonder. The apostles, good Jewish boys that they all were, would have known these psalms like the back of their hand. And I wonder if Psalm 107 crossed their mind as Jesus calmed the storm and calmed the sailors. I wonder if they realized he did exactly what he said he would. There is still 
and we are quiet, even though we just a few moments ago were at our wit's end. Has that happened to you yet? When you're overwhelmed, when you're tempest-tossed, Master, the tempest is raging. Ah, oh, peace be still. And not only peace for the voyage, but in some ways to cut the voyage short by getting you to your destination. He bringeth them to their desired haven. You get a sense of that when on, in the story of Jesus walking on the water, where it was the fourth watch, early hours just before dawn, and the apostles had been toiling in rowing all night and had made incredibly little progress. By the end of that story, not only has Christ come and joined them, walking on the water through the storm, but he's also helped them get to their destination. Christ will get us to our celestial port. We just have to trust in him. There are more blessings described throughout the rest of this psalm. And then he says in verse 43, Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. I hope we can develop that kind of wisdom. The wisdom that makes us observant to the blessings all around us. The wisdom that lets us see the hand of the Lord behind it all. That kind of understanding will will help us understand the loving kindness of God. Psalm 108, I'll just say one quick thing about it. It's a prayer for victory. It's a psalm or song of David. And he says in verse 1 and 2, O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise, even with my glory. Awake, psalter and harp. I myself will awake early. We talked last week about fixed hearts. Fixed in terms of founded, but also fixed in terms of no longer broken. And God wants to fix it, our hearts in both of those ways. And he wants, them to, wants to do that early. So get up early. Awake the Psalter. Awake the heart. I will awake early. I think this is more than just time of day. I think this is to-do list. This is prioritization. And if we will prioritize God, if we'll put him first, oh, think about rolling out of bed and hitting your knees instead of your feet of turning to God instead of turning to a screen and, and trying to connect with spirit instead of connecting with social media. If that's how we start our day, if we awake early to that and get the Psalter and harp going, oh, what a way to begin the day. That's daily devotion. That's taking up the cross daily with all of its vertical connection with God that prepares us for our horizontal connection with our neighbor. Oh, that's, that sounds like a good morning to me. Psalm 109, we next see a prayer for vindication, a psalm of David. Yeah, here he laments that the wicked are attacking him for no reason. And we saw that when Absalom attacked, when Saul attacked, with Ahitophel's negative counsel. David was up against that on occasion. But he says in verse 4, For my love they are my adversaries, but I give myself unto prayer. Now, Joseph Smith translation clarifies that. It says, And notwithstanding my love, despite the fact that I gave my best, they are my adversaries. Yet I will continue in prayer for them. He says more of the same in verse 5. They have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. And that's tragic. 
If you've ever been on the giving end of love, but on the receiving end of hatred in the same relationship, then you have a sense of what David is struggling with here. And yes, it's one thing for David to say that about Absalom or Ahitophel or Saul. But since David is our type of Christ, imagine Jesus saying those things instead. Notwithstanding my love, sometimes you're my adversary. And not that I'm feeling adversarial towards you. No, it's only coming from your direction. I will still pray for you. I will still be merciful. I will still be open-hearted and open-armed. And I just want you to come. I will keep giving you good even if you reward me with evil. And no amount of hatred on your part will stop me from extending to you my love. That, that is powerful once we see that coming from Jesus. I remember once when my wife and I were first dating, and I'm an acquired taste as maybe you haven't yet acquired. I, I don't blame you. But I, we were getting more and more serious, and I wanted to get married, but she wasn't there yet. And I just thought about her all the time and was trying to do things to make sure she knew I was thinking about her. And I still wasn't totally sure how she felt about me. And I remember one day I was doing the dishes. And dishes are a good time for me to think. And I was doing dishes and I just was throwing myself a little private pity party. And I remember kind of lamenting heavenward and, and within my heart just kind of crying out, why doesn't she feel about me the way I feel about her? Why doesn't she love me the way I love her? And right when I thought it, came a voice in my, in my head as the Lord whispered, now you know how I feel. And it wasn't condemning, nor was it a pity party on his part. But it was a wake-up call on mine as I realized he's right. And this is a painful feeling. I don't yet love God the way God loves me. I remember feeling that so intensely at the time and wanting to catch up. I was grateful that by the time we were married, my wife had caught up to me. And she loved me as much as I loved her. I'm still trying to catch up to God. I think I'll spend an eternity trying to narrow that gap because of his infinite, perfect love. But for us to strive for that is a hope that this psalm inspires in me. In verse 7, however, he's still speaking of those that are fighting against God that are rewarding his goodness with their own evil. And so David says, when he shall be judged, let him be condemned and let his prayer become sin. Now that's an interesting phrase. When would prayer become sin? Well, Mormon talked about that in Moroni chapter seven, right? That if the intent isn't there, then it's not just counted neutral, like you didn't do anything. It's counted evil. That's interesting. To, uh, even worse in this case, if I'm responding to God negatively, which suggests I'm probably responding to others negatively as well. First of all, why would I be praying at all? Uh, this sounds like a sinful prayer since it's probably a selfish one. And sure enough, David says in 16 and 17, because that he remembered not to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. 
And as he loved cursing, so let it come unto him. As he delighted not in blessing, so let it be far from him. This is simply reaping what you sow. This is simply the law of the harvest. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured unto you again. And those that curse others, no wonder your prayer is going to become sin. What are you praying for? Praying for blessings? You wouldn't be a blessing to others. Then why would a blessing come to you? Praying against other people. That's the curse. Well, that curse coming back to haunt the person that's invoking it. In verse 25, David says, I became also a reproach unto them. Maybe that was one of their negative prayers against David. When they looked upon me, they shaked their heads. Here again, this is where David becomes a good type and shadow of Jesus. He became a reproach unto his enemies, even among some of his friends. They shaked their heads at him. Think of him on the cross. But David asks, as would Jesus, Help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to thy mercy that they may know that this is thy hand, that thou, Lord, hast done it. You've put me through this. You've suffered me to suffer along these lines. When Jesus gave up the ghost, though his life was not taken from him, he offered it willingly. And to see a similar thing here, they, I need them to know that this is thy hand upon me, not them succeeding in in their selfish prayers or their adversarial curses. He concludes, let them curse, but bless thou. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let thy servant rejoice. So curse on, my enemies. It doesn't matter what you think of me anyway. All that matters to me is what God thinks, and if he is pleased with me, then all is well. Psalm 110, you next see a victory hymn to the king. And you could say lowercase k and leave it as David, or capital K and see this as a messianic psalm, which it is. In verse 1, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. In other words, God is going to fight David's battles. Sit at my right hand, all I'll take down your enemies. They'll be your footstool. You'll put your foot, your foot upon their neck. Now, how's that for being in a position of power? But the way it's phrased at the beginning, the Lord said unto my Lord. So this is God speaking to David. And since it's God that's doing the, the overcoming of the enemy, he's obviously in a higher position, a position of greater strength than King David would be. Well, how's this for a role reversal then, at least suggested by the title given to Jesus as son of David? Jesus himself is going to make a play on this. Now, if you look at the version in Mark chapter 12, Jesus answered and said, well, he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? Now, remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's the title, Messiah. But this is the idea that the scribes had, that the Messiah, whoever that would be, would be referred to as the son of David. Part of that Davidic dynasty, that Davidic monarchy. But he's going to be David's son. But then Jesus goes on. How's, how could he say that? How could the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, and now he's going to quote the 110th Psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. 
Now comes Jesus's question, and he's gonna he's gonna trap the the scribes and Pharisees who always seem to try to trap him. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. Eh, whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. I love the end there. It's almost like they get it. Like, ooh, good question. And it was a kind of gotcha. So when they heard Jesus ask the scribes and Pharisees that, they're like, ooh, got him good. Uh, and they rejoice in that. They hear, they hear Jesus gladly. Well, the scribes and Pharisees weren't so glad to hear that question because they couldn't answer it. And what Jesus is getting at is who's really in charge here? Whose son and whose father in this kind of relationship? You think the Messiah is son of David? Well, David didn't feel that. Yeah, maybe son in terms of chronology and, and descendant. But in terms of power and glory and authority, no, there is Lord of Lords and the Christ of David. Oh, it's a far cry from the son of David. Well, who's, who's the real father in all of this? Jesus understood it well. I love how Jesus was able to navigate his enemies' questions, and yet his enemies could never quite navigate his. There's a great example of it. Then one other place in Psalm 110 worth mentioning. Look at verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if we're sticking with a, a Davidic psalm, then fine, David is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, that David is a priest slash king. This is the only passage in the Old Testament, by the way, that links him to Melchizedek along these lines. But if Melchizedek was a king of Salem, think Jerusalem, and David is in some ways a, an heir to that throne, sitting upon the same, the same throne, ruling over the same kingdom, uh, and so, therefore, a priest and king along the lines of Melchizedek himself. Well, that's if it's the Davidic psalm. Well, if it's a messianic psalm, then all the more clear. Christ, of course, is the, the priest, the high priest, the high priest of good things to come. He is forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the writer of the epistle of Hebrews talks about that at least on two occasions. Hebrews 5.10, Christ was called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6.20, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Don't forget, these New Testament writers knew their Old Testament Psalms really well. And they quoted the hymn book whenever, whenever they got the chance. Psalm 111, now we're back to word games. Uh, or, or artistry, linguistic artistry is probably a better word, because this is another acrostic poem, and one that's meant to praise the Lord. Uh, you can couple this with 112, which is another acrostic poem to those, and this one it's praising those who follow the Lord. So remember, an acrostic is the ABCs, or in uh, Israel's case, the Hebrew, from Aleph to Tav, and each verse is going to start with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and we're going to go through our ABCs of praise. We'll praise God in 111, and then we'll praise God's followers in 112. But 111, verse 1 and 2, Praise ye the Lord, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. That's what we promise, right? All our heart, might, mind, and strength. In the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. It's a great group of people with whom to praise God. The works of the Lord are great, 
sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. Do we find joy in the work of the Lord? Because if we find pleasure in God's work, then of course we're going to seek it out. We're going to go knock on the bishop's door when we first move into a new ward and say, put me to work. I need to serve. We're not going to wait on formal callings because informal ones can come at any time from the Lord. And we don't have to be told who to minister to because everyone is our neighbor. And we can be good Samaritans in every imaginable direction. I do love that. Sought out because I'm having pleasure therein. Then verse 7 and 8. The works of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. I mean, no wonder we find pleasure in them. No wonder we seek after them if that's, if that's how they're described. Truth, righteousness, they stand fast. It's where I want to stand too. Then verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's how we start. You want to be wise? Then be wise enough to honor God. He'll take it from there. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. Oh, great verse. The wisest thing we can do is honor God. And if we do, our wisdom will grow line upon line, precept upon precept from there. Obedience, it's the best possible way to show good understanding on our part. It proves that we understand that God understands that better than we do. And so if he's giving us the instruction manual, then yeah, I think I'll follow it. Then the second half, the, this, the other uh, acrostic poem, Psalm 112, verse 4, Unto the upright there ariseth light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. Oh, there's hope in times of hopelessness. There's courage in times of fear. There's seeing that perfect brightness of hope that comes from the gleaming goodness that hangs from the fruit of the, the, from the tree of life. Fruit that is white above all that is white, pure above all that is pure. That's light in darkness. And the upright can count on it. In verse 7 and 8, He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed. There's that word again. Trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He shall not be afraid. Oh, no fear, despite the perilous times that come. That's part of the inheritance of the servants of the Lord. You, you know his, that your hand is in his, and all will be well. I'm not, you don't ever get to your wit's end, because you know that the Lord's on board the ship with you, notwithstanding whatever winds and waves are outside of it. Then we'll turn to 113 which is a hymn to God. This is the last of three hallelujah psalms, 111 and 112 were the other two. This is also the first of what are referred to as Egyptian hallel psalms, and hallel is praise. Hallelujah is praise to the Lord. And so as in the midst of all of this praising, the likelihood is that these psalms were all sung at major Jewish festivals. Uh, one after the other, or different times of, of the feast. And many scholars believe that Psalm 113 and 114 were sung specifically before the Passover meal, and then 115, 16, 17, 18 were all sung after it. So just like there's certain carols that we all seem to sing at Christmas, and then there's an Easter hymn section of our hymn book, and a couple that we sing around Thanksgiving time and so forth, 
Well, these are hymns, psalms that would have been sung during the festival time, Passover particularly. Psalm 113, verse 3, From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Now, you could think of that both in terms of space, from the rising of the sun, that's as far east as you can imagine, to the going down, that's to the farthest west. You can think of that in terms of time, from dawn to dusk, from the earliest rays of morning light until the final fading lights of, of dusk. It's always time to raise your voice and praise God. Sacred space, sacred time, it's all right there. Verse 5, Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? Interesting that for God, even to look around heaven would be an act of humility. That even heaven itself isn't high enough for him. And if that's true of heaven, then infinitely lower is life here on earth. And yet, God even humbles himself to look at us. Again, part of that condescension that brings so much compassion. He's willing to, to take notice even of us. In verse 7, he then says, God raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill. Powerful imagery there. That he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people, he maketh the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. Can you picture David singing the Psalms along that line? Oh, here he was, someone that not even Samuel saw much potential in until the Lord told him, well, looking at his outside, look at his inside. It's a, it's a sight to behold. Uh, so raise him from the dust. Lift him out of the dunghill. Maybe even more appropriately, can you, can you hear that song, not in David's tenor, but in, in the soprano and alto of sister saints and sister singers? Because to lift the lowly, to raise the poor, to make them princes, or as was so often the case, princesses, isn't that what Sarah means? Princess? And sure enough, Oh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob became the God of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel. In all of those instances, those three women were raised from the lowliest level of Israelite society because they were all considered barren. And an inability to have children, when the covenant revolves around posterity, that's the dunghill. And yet the Lord raised them up. Picture Hannah and the prayers she offered outside the tabernacle, and then the song of Hannah that she sang once her promise, once the promise was given her. Think of Mary next year in the New Testament as she sings her version of Hannah's song. We call it the Magnificat, and it is God magnifying her, that lowly handmaiden, and her magnifying God as a result. Oh, there are things to to praise there in Psalm 113. Same with 114. This is a psalm of praise about the Exodus. Uh, they talk about being delivered from the dunghill. The lowest of the low was Egyptian bondage. And so sure enough, verse 1 through 4, here's your history lesson. When Israel went out of Egypt, 
the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. Judah was his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. There's crossing the, the Red Sea on dry ground. Jordan was driven back. There's Joshua stopping the flow of the Jordan River. The mountains skipped like rams and the little hills like lambs. Oh, all rejoicing in God's hand throughout Israel's history. The next psalm, again, sung at Passover time and feasts and festivals. Psalm 115, here is a community petition that God show his glory. Let the world see it. Verse 1, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Let the, the spotlight shine on thee, not on us. The psalmist goes on to compare the God of Israel to the idols of the wicked. And how's this for comparison? Verse 4, their idols are silver and gold. <laughs> the work of men's hands, that's all they are. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither spake they through their throat. And they that make them are like unto them. And so is everyone that trusteth in them. Now, does that clarify which gods we should worship and which we should ignore? I idolatry? Are you kidding me? I mean, this goes back to that oh, apocryphal story of the young Abraham making fun of the idolatry in Ur of the Chaldees by knocking over the false gods and said, well, if they're true gods, of course, they'll be able to pick themselves back up again. Uh, this is uh, what happened with the Philistines conquering Israel or taking the Ark of the Covenant and installing it in their own Philistine temple. And yet Dagon falls on his face before the God of Israel. I mean, it's interesting to see the description there. They have all the right body parts carved in stone or etched in gold and silver. But none of those body parts do anything. Why would you speak to an idol with ears if the idol can't use them to listen? <laughs> that, the eyes, of course you can act and do anything you want before the idol. The eyes don't work. Oh, it's pathetic what we put so much of our time and attention into when those false gods can do nothing for us eternally. And then that last line is the warning. Those that make them are like unto them. Hmm, that's, there's some condemnation for you. Your eyes are no better than that false idols because you don't see things as they really are. Your ears are just as deaf as theirs are because you don't hear the word of the Lord. You refuse to. Your nose doesn't smell. I often call discernment the spiritual sense of smell. Because with smell, you can kind of just sense what's going on around you or if it's good or bad, even without seeing anything. And discernment is like that. Can you discern? Or is your nose plugged, spiritually speaking? Your idol sure is. No hands to do God's work. No feet to follow in the Lord's path. It's a fascinating passage to, to compare true gods from false gods, but also followers of one versus the other. Which will we be? Psalm 116 next is a thanksgiving psalm. 
And he has this for, for gratitude. Verse 1, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications, because he hath inclined his ear unto me. Therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. You know, usually in the Psalms, they'll say things like, praise the Lord, which makes this one so beautiful in its uniqueness because it explicitly states that it's love. I love the Lord. And because God hears me, why would I not want to tell him that? Why would I not want to praise him eternally, speak to him as long as I live? That's love. That's a relationship. In verse 7, return unto thy rest, O my soul. So be at peace whenever anxiety arises. Just rest. It's going to be okay. How do I know it? For the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. Remember that great line from, we thank thee, O God, for a prophet. We have proved him in days that are past. Uh, we have. God has proven himself. And having delivered us from death, having wiped away tears from our eyes, having held our feet like hinds feet so we wouldn't slip off the straight and narrow, uh, we can trust him. And our soul, therefore, can be at rest concerning our state and standing with God. In verse 12, he asks, What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits towards me? That's a great question. What could we possibly give God in return for all that he's given us? Well, how's this for an idea? I will take the cup of salvation. Wait, what? That's what I'm going to do for God? I'm going to take what he gives me? Yes, that's exactly right. Please just accept his gift. And that's one of the kindest things that we can do for him. Because he, he rejoices in his goodness and his mercy, at multitudes of mercy, at this fatherly regard. This, he just wants to bless us. Accept it. Take the cup of salvation. And what's next? Call upon the name of the Lord. Just maintain your relationship with him. Keep, stay in communication. How about this idea? I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. That's another thing I can do. I can be obedient. I can stand as a witness of him at all times and in all places that I might be in. How about this one? This is a little harder to swallow. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now that was a psalm that was on the lips of many a martyr as they faced the flames or the lions or, or the cross, knowing that their sacrificial death was pleasing and precious in the sight of God because he knew they were doing it for him. I will say, however, that if the death of his saints is precious in his sight, then the life of his saints, as long as it's saintly, must be just as precious, if not more so. I heard once that somebody had asked Elder Holland, back in the Bible times, the apostles always seemed to die for, for their beliefs. They, they gave their lives to the Lord. Why don't apostles today do that? And Elder Holland's response was, I thought that's what I was doing. It's one thing to give your life in one heroic act, but to do it 
on the daily. And act by act and sacrifice by sacrifice to, to pay those vows, to stand as a witness, to accept the cup of salvation, to call upon his name. All that we do, that will be precious in the eyes of God as well. Then verse 16 and 17. O Lord, truly I am thy servant. I am thy servant. And the son of thine handmaid, thou hast loosed my bonds. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. We really are nothing. I'm, I'm a servant. He says it twice. And then to put himself even lower, I'm the son of thine handmaid. So I'm, I'm the servant. I'm, I'm, the, I'm second generation servant. And we could go way beyond two generations on this one. And yet, despite my nothingness, you've seen me, you've loosed my bonds, you've freed me, delivered me. Then the least I can offer you is my gratitude, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. What, what can we offer him? We can offer him our thanks. And he is thankful for that when it comes. Psalm 117 next is an invitation to worship the Lord. This is the shortest psalm in the whole book. So if you're not, I, this would happen sometimes in seminary when I'd ask, call upon students, okay, what hymn should we sing today? And the ones that weren't really big on hymn singing would always pick the shortest one. Well, if you're not big on opening hymns, uh, at least sing this one. Psalm 117, here's the whole thing, two verses. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people, for his merciful kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. Short and sweet, but all-encompassing, including all, all nations, all people. Come and join in, in the chorus. Praise to the Lord. Psalm 118, the last of this set of praise psalms, this is a messianic psalm that was meant to give thanks in some kind of solemn procession. Imagine people oh, marching forward, a, a procession entering the temple precincts, or at least coming close to the house of the Lord, seeking admittance there, as they pray for this in verse 1. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let them now that fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth forever. Can you picture this being a processional and more and more people coming into the throng and singing alongside the rest? Can you picture this being, oh, choir notes that somebody scribbles in the, in the side of the hymn book and this is what, what the men are going to sing this verse and the women are going to come in here and then we're going to have it in unison in this verse and then we're going to harmonize in this one. And I, I do love the thought of this being some kind of almost a call and response kind of hymn where it's time to give thanks to God for his mercy endureth forever. You come in, say the same. You come and add your voice to the throng. A beautiful, a beautiful anthem, which culminates in this, verse 22, the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And what's so marvelous? Well, the fact that that could happen. 
that a stone that the builders refused, rejected. Oh, this is no, we this isn't good enough for what we're trying to to build. This one is not we don't we don't want on the construction site. And yet, give it time, and what ends up happening? It becomes the chief cornerstone, the headstone of the corner. Now you see why this is a messianic psalm? Because how did the Jews, by and large, in Christ's day, feel about him? They rejected him. He was the stone which the builders refused. And yet, what ends up happening? He is the chief cornerstone. The whole building fitly framed together based on him. It could, does that sound like the house of Israel? It's been rejected, a hiss and a byword through so much of human history. And yet, that is God's chosen people, destined to become a holy nation and a peculiar treasure to Him. Does it sound like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that for so much of its history has been looked down upon and refused by the builders of the nation, and yet destined to become a cornerstone of the kingdom of God? Oh, it's amazing to see how this messianic prophecy has been fulfilled in multiple ways. You can even take it personally. I hope you do. That if you've ever been rejected or refused, turn to the Lord and you will see what He will make of you. Look at your own weaknesses and the things about yourself that you just don't like. Look at the trials and, and sacrifices that you've been through and see those as things you wish you could refuse. And yet, they have been the cornerstone of your character and they've made you who you are. No wonder this phrase keeps coming up in the New Testament. Notice in Matthew chapter 21, for example, this is right after Jesus has taught the chief priests and, and elders the parable of the wicked husbandman. Remember that one? That this Lord of the vineyard has, has uh, hired out uh, or leased his property, so to speak, and these husbandmen have come. But then he sends other servants to check on them and see how things are going, and they don't like that, and so they... They beat up the, the servants. They slay some of them until the Lord finally says, well, they've treated my servants that way. Surely they will honor my son. And so he sends the son. But what do they do to him? They kill his son. Now that has some obvious fulfillment in the way they treated the prophets and then ultimately treated Jesus Christ himself. But notice what Jesus says at the end of that parable. Matthew 21, verse 42 and 43 did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same as become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in your eyes. So there's Jesus quoting the 118th Psalm in the context of this parable of the wicked husbandman. Didn't you ever read that? Don't you know your scriptures? So take that scriptural understanding and combine it with the little story I just told you. And what should you be thinking? Well, he helps them with that. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. You see what you're doing? You're rejecting the, the stone that you're supposed to be building upon. And that's me. I am the rock of your redemption. But don't lose hope. The day will come where the gospel passes from the Jews to the Gentiles, but then back to the Jews. You've rejected me. I will become the chief cornerstone. 
And yet there's a way, even after all of that, for you to build upon me. If only you'll repent. That seems to be the suggestion that Peter and John give the, the people in Acts chapter 4. In verse 10 and 11, they say, Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. They're trying to explain how the layman is able to walk. And then they quote their scripture. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby ye must be saved. Oh, you rejected Jesus. You refused the stone. And yet look what he's done to this lame man. He's let him walk. Look what he's going to do to all the world. He'll bring life to us if we'll only accept him. So that stone that you rejected, you've got to rethink your construction materials and build upon that exact rock. Now, if those are New Testament examples of that from Jesus and from two of his closest followers, his apostles, couple that with, with Jacob chapter 5. At least the way Jacob sets up and introduces Jacob chapter 5. You know Jacob 5. It's the longest chapter in the Book of Mormon. It's the allegory of the olive tree. And all the digging and dunging and, and watering and weeping and how pruning and planting and scattering and gathering and everything else the Lord does for his vineyard. What's that all about? Notice how Jacob sets up the allegory at the end of Jacob chapter 4. It's amazing. Jacob 4, verse 14, he's explaining that the house of Israel was often blind to the Lord's counsel, and they often rejected the prophets. At least that's what he would have heard from his older brother Nephi and his father Lehi, since they lived through it all. Okay, He's describing that, and then in verse 15 and 16, he says, Now I, Jacob, am led on by the Spirit unto prophesying. So I've, been, I've recognized that the Jews have been this way in the past. The house of Israel has been blind, but now the Spirit is is prompting me to make a prophecy. For I perceive by the workings of the Spirit which is in me that by the stumbling of the Jews they will reject the stone upon which they might build and have safe foundation. Now this would have rocked Jacob's world. He, he recognized that there was a kind of a communal weakness about looking beyond the mark or being blind to the blessings of God. And and he realizes, oh no, the Spirit just whispered to me, it's, it's going to stay that way. And they're going to continue rejecting the voice of true messengers. Oh no, which means they're going to reject Jesus when he comes. They are going to reject the stone upon which they must build. Well, that's when prophecy meets Scripture. And where spiritual insight now points him back to the text. Because Jacob, again, I wish we could be there and watch this unfold in real time, right? He's just giving this conference talk, and all of a sudden he's talking about the, the dangers of the house of Israel and what they're going through, and it's like, uh-oh, Spirit just prophesied, and I'm going to prophesy to you. It's going to be that way, and they're going to reject the Messiah. Wait a minute, scriptures say that that's the only rock that they can possibly build on, so what's going to happen to them? Well, keep reading your scriptures, Jacob. And if you know the 118th Psalm, then rest assured. He says, but behold, according to the scriptures, 
This stone shall become the great and the last and the only sure foundation upon which the Jews can build. There's Psalm 118. But then Jacob wonders, Now, my beloved, how is it possible that these, after having rejected the sure foundation, can ever build upon it, that it may become the head of their corner? Now, Jacob is scratching his head. He's, he knows what the Jews are like from history. He now knows what they will be like from prophecy. He compares that to Scripture, that, that the Messiah will be their only chance. But then coupling that with the 118th Psalm, but the stone they rejected will someday become the head of the corner. Huh, the, is it too late for them eternally? Or is there still hope that they can actually build where they were supposed to build from the beginning. And that's when he says, Behold, my beloved brethren, I will unfold this mystery unto you, if I do not by any means get shaken from my firmness in the spirit and stumble because of my over-anxiety for you. And take it away, Zenos. <laughs> that's the intro to Jacob chapter 5. How's it going to happen? How... Are people that once rejected Christ ever going to get a second chance to build upon him? That's the love of the Lord of the vineyard. That's what all this digging and dunging is for. It's the redemptive turbulence. It's the calls to repentance. It's sending servants out and digging in the garden a little longer. It's scattering and gathering and just what more could I have done for my vineyard? I'll, I'll do it all. I'll pull out all the stops. I just want people to know that all is not lost for them and they are not cast off forever. That is the legacy of the 118th Psalm. And it's a masterpiece. It should give us all hope, no matter what kind of circumstances we seem to be living in. In fact, speaking of the circumstances we're living in, look at verse 24. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So no matter what today looks like, if it's dark and gloomy, if it's overcast, if it's, if it's some rough sailing ahead, at least you're still in the boat and he's in it with you. So rejoice in it. Be glad. This is the day the Lord hath made. And if it comes as a gift from him, then quit looking the gift horse in the mouth. Quit wishing it were a different day. It's one of the things that I always appreciated on my mission from the prayers of so many of my Latin American brothers and sisters. Often they would thank God for un día más de vida, one more day of life. And for many of them, life wasn't easy. And so what was the point of having one more? Oh, they just were grateful to have, to have it. This is the day the Lord hath made, and we'll be glad in it. We could learn, we could all stand to learn something from that. Verse 25 and 6 then. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. Well, in some ways, this is the triumphal entry. Hosanna means save us. And what are they saying in this, at the end of this psalm? Save us. Save now. And then the other phrase, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. It's exactly what they said at the triumphal entry. Again, they knew their psalms. And as Jesus rides in 
to that sacred city. They see him as their king, the, the son of David who happened to be the Lord of David. It's all coming together, which then leads us to the 119th Psalm. And this one is an absolute masterpiece too. The 119th Psalm is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. Uh, we saw the shortest Psalm, two little verses. Well, this one seems to be go on forever. Uh, and in a way it's meant to because it's supposed to go from A to Z or from Aleph to Tav. This is the acrostic poem to end all acrostic poems. Because the way it works is uh, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet and there are 22 sections of Psalm 119. 22 stanzas if we're going to stick with poetry language. And, the, and every stanza, every section has eight verses. And all eight verses in each stanza start with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So verses 1 through 8 are for Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And all eight verses start with an Aleph. And then you go to Beit, and, and all the next from 9 through 16 are all the B uh, uh, verses. And they praise God for the blessings he gives them, all starting with the letter B. Uh, if you're trying to learn the Hebrew alphabet, uh, this is a good place to look at it because it shows the letter here in our King James Bible, and it's all in order, and you can, you can work on your, your, your alphabet. And in some ways, it's even more fitting that this would, would be built out of the letters of the alphabet because this whole magnificent psalm is about the Word of God. So let me spell out God's Word for you. Let me take all the letters of the alphabet, because every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God is made up of these letters. So just take them all one by one, rearrange the order and repeat them. And, and, and through these building blocks, you will come to know God, who is the word. In fact, there are usually eight synonyms within each eight uh, verse section, eight synonyms for God's word. Words like law, word, promises, ordinances, statutes, commandments, decrees, precepts. You could add that the word for loving kindness, chesed in Hebrew, which has such deep theological meaning, it appears seven times in this psalm. Seven, again, to suggest its completeness, its wholeness. And also the word servant appears twice as much. So take seven and multiply it by two. And we are meant to be God's servants, rejoicing in his loving kindness by partaking of and participating in his word. So A to Z, Aleph to Tav, how's this for an alphabet soup about the word of God? I'll give you at least a verse for every letter. How's that? For Aleph, this is the A sound, although in reality it's a silent letter in the Hebrew alphabet that just takes on the, the sound of whatever vowel it's next to. But verse 1, Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. Or verse 5, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Well, good news, they are. So just follow the Spirit. Your ways really are directed. And if you'll follow the promptings of the Spirit or the Word of God, as this long psalm emphasizes, you will keep God's statutes. You will be directed and undefiled in the way. 
How's this from the, sec the section from bait, the B sound? Verse 11, thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. I don't know of a better description of memorized scripture than that phrase. Word that we have hid in our heart. Because if it's hidden there, no, that we might not sin against thee. That's something Elder Richard G. Scott once taught. That scripture, once it's memorized, it becomes a friend that can come to your rescue in, times, in time of need. It's hidden away. It's tucked away. It's saved up, stored in the heart. And if I'm struggling, if temptation comes, then all of a sudden, where can my mind go away from that temptation? It can go find refuge in the Word of God because it's hidden there in my heart. How about this from Gimel, the G sound, the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 18, Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Oh, if hiding word in the heart is memorizing scripture, then beholding wondrous things out of the law, that's studying scripture. We've talked here before about burning bushes, scripturally speaking, where somehow you find a verse that begins to glow with a little gospel light and you decide to turn aside to see. Was it, what is it in that passage that the Lord wants to tell me? Well, that's the prayer there. God, open my eyes. Help me see the burning bushes that are on every page of Scripture. And when I see them, if I turn aside and get the message God has hidden there for me, then yes, I will behold wondrous things out of thy law. It has been so incredible throughout my experience to see things in Scripture I never, I never knew were there. And I'm sure the same has happened for you. Haven't you ever read a scripture? And you know you've read it before. But all of a sudden you're thinking, has that always been there? Who snuck that verse in? Because I swear I've read this book, this book before, but I've never noticed that. Well, that's just the Lord helping you behold wondrous things out of his law. And go back for more, because there's always more waiting. In verse 19, still a Gimel verse, I am a stranger in the earth, Hide not thy commandments from me. I love that one too because I've been a stranger at times. I, I was a stranger when I first got to Puerto Rico and had no idea that what the language was supposed to be. I, mean, I thought I knew Spanish. Uh, it, Puerto Ricans speak a different version of it. Uh, I felt like a stranger when I first went to Israel. Uh, I, if you've ever had culture shock and you go to some new place and you are a stranger there, it's easy to put your foot in your mouth and say things uh, that you thought were coming out right and they're not. Uh, it's easy to do the wrong things or to, I mean, these cultural, those kind of sacred cows that you don't even know about and I'm offending people or I don't know where to go. I don't, I just don't know how to navigate life in this foreign territory. Can somebody help me? That's why as missionaries, you get a trainer. Someone to show you the ropes. It's why if you're going to travel in a foreign culture, it sure is nice to have someone, a native, showing you the way. And if you don't have that, at least get a book. <laughs> get a, a travel guide that will help introduce you that this is the cultural norm. Or make sure you don't do that. And how do I greet people? And how do I respond? And how do I find where the restroom is? And all those other things. What I love about that verse in verse 19 is 
that's the sense we get from Scripture, from the Word of God. Remember, section 119, start to finish, it's all about God's Word and any of the synonyms. And here, please don't hide your commandments from me, because I'm a stranger in the earth. You see what he's saying there? Oh, wait, you mean your commandments are, are like that travel guide? Your commandments are my, are my, my host in a foreign culture because the commandments of God tell me, an eternal being, how I'm supposed to navigate my mortal experience. No wonder we, we don't want God to hide them from us because they're the ones that help us navigate life in this foreign land. In verse 24, here's another one. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. It's a great combination. Thy testimonies, there's another synonym for the word of God here. And the word you give me, I delight in it. It's, the, it's what I want to hang out with when I just want to feel joy and rejoicing. But it's also my counselor. The testimonies of God have the best advice. I think sometimes we have two separate groups of friends. And this group of friends are the ones I want to go hang out with if I just want to have a good time, if I want to delight myself in life. And then there's these other friends that I go to when I, when I need counseling, when I need advice, when I need some serious help. Well, the Word of God is meant to be both sets of friends at the same time. And if we know God's Word well enough, then yes, it gives us causes to rejoice and it provides us the counsel that we need. I don't know of a better counselor than the Word of God, both in terms of what its written aspect, the permanent word on the page, as well as its oh, inspired voice of the Spirit, still small voice that can come as well. Next comes Dalit, which makes the D sound in the Hebrew alphabet. And verse 27, which starts with that letter, Make me to understand the way of thy precepts, so shall I talk of thy wondrous works. That's a pretty good cause and effect there. If you can help me understand your precepts, another one of those synonyms, then I will talk of, I'll talk about them. I'll explain them to other people. I think so often what keeps us from talking about the gospel is, is we don't feel like we understand it well enough. And we don't talk about scripture because I just don't get it. Or I don't rejoice in the temple because the endowment is confusing for me and I don't see the symbolism. Well, that's a great prayer to offer. Father, if you will make me understand thy ways, then I'll pass that blessing forward. I will help other people by talking about those things to them. I mean, that's, that's kind of natural. The better we understand something, the more we want to talk about it. And so, yes, that applies to scripture study. It applies to temple attendance. It applies to the life of discipleship. And the better you get it, the more you'll want other people to get it too. And then missionary work becomes just a natural outgrowth of what we've come to know and appreciate. It's no longer forced or, or contrived. In some ways, that's what advertisers are always after. If people can just experience the product and rejoice in it, then word of mouth will do far more good than some kind of contrived advertising campaign. We're trying to force feed something they just don't get or they don't understand. But man, once, we, once they know how to use it, oh, it will spread or the spreading will take care of itself. That's how missionary work is supposed to go. How about the next letter? Hey is the H sound. And in verse 33, here's one, a verse from Hey. 
Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. This is similar to the, if, if I understand it, then I'll share it. Well, in this case, if you'll teach it to me and I understand it, then I'll live it. Uh, obedience tend to, tends to come naturally once we understand the purpose behind the precept. What's, what reason does God have for making me want to live a certain way? Once, that, once we clue into that, oh, that's, God really does know best. Those words really are the instruction manual for this foreign trip. Uh, yeah, they are. So let's learn them. Ask God to teach us his ways. Another one, verse 36, incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. See the choice that's before us and which way is our heart leaning? That's the incline verb. Can we retrain our reflexes so that we lean towards Zion instead of towards Babylon? And we, we desire, our hearts are inclined to the testimonies of God instead of the wants and wishes of the world. Imagine retraining yourself so that in the morning you instinctively turn to prayer instead of turning to your phone. And you're seeking the word of God instead of just mindlessly scrolling through social media. Well, you can find the word of God in social media. That, that might be a good compromise. How's that? Or how about this from the, the Vav section? This is the V sound in the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 45 is a good one. I, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. You see the connection between freedom and obedience in that verse? I'm at liberty because I walk in thy precepts. Too often, people from the outside look at a life of discipleship, which means a life of discipline, things that we do and things that we refuse to do, commandment keeping. Oh, it's so restrictive. Well, I've said this before. Words of wisdom from one of my old seminary students who said, you know, I used to feel the church was restrictive until I went to the zoo and realized how grateful I am for the bars. Do you get it? I'm on the right side of them. And so I'm the thing that's free, not the lions and tigers and bears, oh my. They're the ones that are probably, that should be frustrated with those bars. The adversary who goeth about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Yeah, he's the one that's frustrated by the laws of God because he's not free to, to, to vanquish me. I am free to escape him. So no wonder I walk at liberty. Such a great concept. Obedience is the ultimate freedom once we come to understand it. Next letter is Zion, and that's the Z sound. And in verse 54, thy statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Great verse. The house of my pilgrimage, that goes back to this idea of, of we're in foreign territory as mere mortals on, the, on earth. That we are strangers and pilgrims upon the earth. That's what the writer of Hebrews said. And if they were channeling their inner psalmist, that's probably the one they would go to. What songs do I sing during my pilgrimage? You ever been on a long road trip and, and you want a soundtrack to, to pass the miles? Well, that's what's happening here. And what are those songs on the soundtrack? They're the statutes of God. God's word is providing the lyrics. His spirit is providing the tune. And together we know the songs to sing throughout life's pilgrimage. Anytime we're feeling tired or impatient, are we there yet? As the kids would say from the back seat, well, here's another song to sing. We're not there yet, 
but we're getting there. And there's still miles to go before we sleep. Now, the next Hebrew letter is harder for us English speakers to say. It's a guttural sound called chet. And so that's the ch sound. And in verse 62, how's this for a ch verse? At midnight, I will rise to give thanks unto thee because of thy righteous judgments. Now, that's an odd thing to wake up in the middle of the night for. You ever woken up at midnight? Rise? I mean, as a young father, I did it all the time to go change a dirty diaper for one of my kids. Or maybe to reassure a child that woke up at midnight himself because of a, a nightmare. I've been known to wake up in the middle of the night to use the restroom. Uh, or, uh, more positively, to go find a midnight snack. But I don't know how often I just wake up at midnight to go praise God for the blessings He's brought into my life. Now, that's something to worth, worth losing sleep over. But I love, the, the, I love the thought of that. Just almost being startled. Like, like you wake up in the middle of a dream and you realize that oh, my life isn't as good as that dream. Well, in this case, it's the opposite. My, I'm living the dream because of all that God has done for me. And I just want to wake up, set an alarm some midnight and just wake up and offer God your gratitude. It's, it's a beautiful thing to consider. In the next section is, the, is tet, which is the T sound. And in verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. Now, interesting the way it's phrased. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now it's different. Now I keep the word. So it sounds like the tipping point or the hinge moment was the moment of your affliction. Sounds like you had done some things wrong and you had to suffer the consequences of your poor decisions. But that affliction was education and not just condemnation. It woke you up and you realized what you were doing wrong and you changed. Now you keep the word. I hope that our afflictions can have that kind of positive effect on us. If they do, then we'll join the psalmist in what he says in verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. I mean, yeah, it's tough tuition. It's the school of hard knocks. But hmm, if you can graduate, you do have an incredible education under your belt. You can learn from your afflictions to trust in God, to follow his word. Next comes the yod, which is the Y sound. And in verse 73, Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. It's a great connection between the first half and the second half. You made me. Can you help me understand how I'm supposed to work? I mean, if you've ever noticed uh, in an instruction manual, if there's a designer or an inventor, whoever it is that put all this together, Chances are they know how it's supposed to work since they made the thing. Well, that's God. And since God made us, since he fashioned us, then of course, who better to give us an understanding of how our lives are supposed to go, how we're supposed to navigate mortality. He's the author of the plan. And if we'll just turn to him, his word, it's the instruction book. And it tells us exactly how we're supposed to do it. It gives us that level of understanding. Or how about verse 75? Back to the idea of affliction. 
I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. This is still holding on to that positive attitude about afflictions. They were, that was redemptive turbulence. That's the kind of attitude that Job needed and that he eventually acquired. That I know your judgments are right. And if I'm going through something hard at thy hand, I trust that it's for good reason. I, your faithfulness is what's afflicting me goes along perfectly with what King Benjamin had said, that if, we're, if we can truly become like little children, then we'll be meek and humble and trusting enough to submit to all things that the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon us, like any good child would do to a parent that they trust. The next letter is cough, which is the K sound. And in verse 81, my soul fainteth for thy salvation, but I hope in thy word. You see, salvation is what I most want. And what gives me the hope that I'll get there? Thy word. The word of God is what gives me a reason for the hope that is in me. It helps me understand that the salvation that I faint for, that I long for, it's what God is working that I might receive. Talk about a source of hope. Lamed is the next letter. It's the L sound. And in verse 89, beautiful, short, sweet verse, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Get it? It's settled. It's done. It's a done deal. Bank on it. Trust it. The plan is set in stone. God is fully trustworthy. His word is settled. And then comes the M sound, mem in, in Hebrew. Verse 99 and 100. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. Now, I never had the guts to quote that psalm to my teachers in all my years of education, but I do believe they're true. That if we turn to God and, and meditate on his testimonies, keep his precepts, in other words, hold to his word, his law, then we will have more understanding than our teachers. Unless those teachers are also doing the same thing with the law of God. <laughs> okay, right? Then Hopefully we're just catching up to them then. But there's something to be said about the wisdom that can only come from God. There's something to be said for learning by study and also by faith. Okay, uh, Learning by the heart as well as by the head. And enrolling in schools in both Athens and in Jerusalem. Okay, Understand what I'm saying with all of that? There's... There are truths that can only be learned through, through revelation. And that doesn't take the place of, of more worldly forms of study uh, and more earthbound uh, sources of truth. That's why God says you've got to learn by study as well as by faith. So I'm not saying learn by faith to replace learning by study, but please don't limit yourself to learning by study alone. Otherwise, you'll know no more than earthbound teachers or, or earthbound ancients. As Elder, Mac, uh, excuse me, Elder Packer used to say, if all you know is from things that you can see or touch, then you don't know very much. Some things can only come by revelation from God. But if you can gain that revelation, well, your understanding will surpass that of even the ancients. You'll be smarter than your teacher.
And that's it's not something worth shooting for. The next letter is noon. That's the N sound. And in verse 105, we read that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's a famous verse from the Psalms. Have you ever tried to walk an unfamiliar path in the dark? It was all, it's always my nightmare when it comes to camping or hiking trips that include an overnight. And so I make sure that my flashlight has good batteries and is always handy. That's how we ought to feel about the Word of God. In our days of darkness, as we, as, as we think about Lehi's dreams, how do we navigate the mists of darkness? The only way we can do it, really, is with the iron rod. Because what is it doing, according to the psalmist? It's providing a lamp for our feet, a light for our path. That'd be an interesting element to add to Lehi's dream. Or how about this? In the next section, it's Samek, which is the S sound. Verse 113, I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. Vain thoughts. I think of my wife when I think of that verse because she hates vain thoughts. My wife loves good conversation. But kind of like a, a connoisseur of good cooking, oh, if it's not good, it's hard to choke it down. And so my wife uh, has, has a low threshold for what she calls pseudo-conversation. In fact, she and I have talked uh, about different levels. We kind of take the degrees of glory and compare that to conversation topics. That telestial talk oh, leaves people worse than you found them. It's things like gossip and backbiting and lying or just spreading rumors or things. But then there's a higher level, but just the terrestrial talk. That leaves people pretty much the same way you found them. That's small talk. Well, let's just discuss the weather, right? We're not really getting anywhere. Uh, and, and I guess pseudo-conversation would, would fit with that too. Where, yeah, you're chewing the fat, I suppose. The words are being exchanged, but not real ideas that are changing people. That's the level of celestial conversation. And when it has to do with ideas... And, and you're creating new insights and you're connecting on a deeper level. Oh, that's the kind of conversation that my wife is so gifted at and that she wishes I were more gifted at myself. And if you want that kind of conversation partner, nobody beats God on that. You want to talk about celestial conversation. That's him to a T. And so thy law do I love? Wow, and once you fall in love with that level, then no wonder vain thoughts are so hateful to you. Now, let me give you one more verse from, from the Psalmic section. Verse 116. Uphold me according unto thy word, that I may live, and let me not be ashamed of my hope. It's that last phrase that strikes me. Because I, because I work so often with people that are in faith crisis, I feel for them because they are... They're worried that they should be ashamed of their hope. They worry that, have I been wrong? And all these things that I've been banking on and hoping for because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's, it's going up in smoke and, and people make fun of things and they're mocking things that I once held sacred and I don't know how I feel about them anymore and I just don't want to be ashamed of the things that that I've placed my hope in. That's the Nephi 1 to a T, by the way. 
Third Nephi 1, when the enemies of, of Christ and his followers were saying, oh, the day, night, day is, the, well, the five years that Samuel the Lamanite prophesied until the coming of Christ, oh, they're long gone. Uh, and he didn't come. So your hope has been in vain. There's no reason to hold on to your faith. So let it go. No. I, what I love about Psalm 119, verse 116, is that if you hold to God's word, then it will hold you. It will uphold you. Uphold me according to thy word. And with that word, fortifying your faith and confirming your testimony, grounding your hope, there's nothing to be ashamed of. The light will come. The night will, will come without darkness. The Savior will appear and save us. You can count on it. That's what I love about the verse in Peter when he mentions that you will have a reason for the hope that is in you. There's no shame there. Reason, there's the head. Hope, there's the heart. It's coming together. And it comes through God's word. The next letter in the Hebrew alphabet is another strange one. It's kind of like Aleph that's just a kind of a, a, a holder, a consonant that really acts more like a vowel. And this one's called Ein. And the verse in the Ein section I'd like to call attention to is verse 126. It is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. Now, it's a little gutsy, I would say, to, to set the alarm for God or to call him out of his sleep if you think that he's sleeping. We'll see in a moment that he's not. But to, to say to him, okay, God, it's time. But it's time for work. I find myself having to say that to my kids sometimes when they sleep through their alarm, like, it's time for work. You got to get going. But I would, I would never say that to God. And yet the psalmist does. Well, think about it this way. The, the clue comes at the end. They have made void thy law. You see what they're doing? I sometimes wonder, uh, do our actions in some ways uh, dictate the timetable of the Lord? Uh, President Kimball suggested that that might be the possibility as far as the timetable of the second coming. Are we speeding things up or slowing things down based on our activities or our procrastinations? But in terms of people making void the laws of God, does there come a time where God has to step in and say, okay, uh, far enough? I've wondered even in terms of like medical technology, when we're getting closer and closer to the point where we can play God and decide exactly what our children need to be like when they are born. Uh, that, that's a little scary to, to realize that technology might be outpacing ethics in some areas. And just because we can do something doesn't necessarily mean that we should. And so if people are making a mockery of God's law, if they're coming to a point where they are voiding it, is that the time where we start praying, okay, Lord, it's time for you to do your work and wrap this thing up. Hasten the day. Uh, set the set time. And please come. Come put an end to our self-destruction. The next letter is the, is the P letter, pay in Hebrew. And in verse 133, how's this for a P verse? Order my steps in thy word. And let not any iniquity have dominion over me. 
See, that's the problem with iniquity. It seeks dominion. That's why so many sins, especially in our day, seem to be of the addictive nature. And how do we avoid that kind of domination? We turn to God's word and his word orders our steps. We've seen all kinds of examples of this in this glorious 119th Psalm, that it's the instruction manual in foreign territory, right? That it, it provides the, the directions to know what to do with ourselves since God made us and knows, and knows what the instruction manual should look like. He can order our steps like, oh, nope, nope, there's a minefield and don't walk over there. That is a, a bear trap and you're about to put your foot in it and it will dominate you from this point forward. You want to stay out of Satan's snares? You want to avoid that kind of domination, dominion? Then yes, let God's word order your steps. The next letter is tzadi. We don't have that in English. We need two letters for that, the T and the S. But the tz sound has its own letter in Hebrew. And verse 142 starts with that sound. It says, thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Oh, sure, cultural norms, customs, fads can come and go. But righteousness, God's righteousness, that is, that is eternal. That is an everlasting righteousness. It'll never go out of style. The next letter is kof, which is the Q sound. And verse 145 says, I cried with my whole heart. Hear me, O Lord, I will keep thy statutes. Now, interesting, again, maybe he just had to use these words to fit the cue in, but to cry with your whole heart, hear me, O Lord. Well, I think last week I mentioned that some prayers seem to have opening prayers to begin the prayer. <laughs> and hear me, Lord, open your ear, I'm about to speak. Okay, I just prayed to start my prayer. Uh, I think something similar is happening here, but it's louder. And I'm crying with my whole heart to God to hear me. Okay, now that I've got God's attention, and now that he's fully listening to what I'm about to say, what, I, what am I about to say? Here it is. I will keep my statutes. There you go. I think it's interesting that we would want to call God's attention to our commitment and that we would want to shout out our commitment to the covenant at the top of our lungs. The next letter is resh, which is the R sound, or better yet, the R sound, if you can roll your R's. Uh, in verse 158, here's your R verse. I beheld the transgressors and was grieved because they kept not thy word. Like every other stanza here, we're focused on God's word but what are we doing in this one? We're grieving over people who aren't keeping it. It's not even me. Uh, I mean, I've learned enough word to know that it's navigating me and keeping me out of Satan's dominion. And so I'm doing my very best to follow it. Okay, so would say the psalmist. But what else is the psalmist saying? Other people aren't quite there yet. And I mourn for them. I worry sometimes, I hear it among youth sometimes, that they look at people not living the gospel with a certain degree of envy. And it's like, or sometimes they'll hear it like when an old timer joins the church and they think they got baptized and all their sins were washed away like in the, at the end of their lives. That would have been pretty sweet. I could have lived it up. 
and done anything I wanted and then had all my sins washed away. Well, what worries me about that attitude is it seems to suggest that they don't believe Alma, who said that wickedness never was happiness. If we believed Alma's words, then we would feel grief over people who didn't know the right way to live. And we will, would feel sorry for them instead of jealous of them, knowing that, that not, it wasn't the, we weren't the ones that missed out on their quote-unquote fun. They missed out on the safety and security that the gospel provides. They missed out on greater happiness and peace and rest, as Abraham said. And that is a cause for grief among the faithful. The next letter then is sheen. It gives the sh sound. We need an sh. They only need one letter. And in verse 162, this is one of my favorites because it, I feel it so strongly whenever I open up my scriptures and really dive in. He says in verse 162, I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. Oh, scripture study is the ultimate treasure hunt. And when you turn aside to see, when the Lord opens your eyes to behold wonderful works in his law, then you do rejoice over things you found because it is better than great spoil. You have discovered truth. And it's been right there waiting for you on the page all this time. I've been watching my son lately. It's been amazing. And on his service mission, there's, it's, it lacks the structure and specifically the companionship of a proselyting mission. And we've tried to provide some of it, but he wants to be his own you know, missionary and he's doing amazing things working with, with the people that he's serving. Uh, but it's only been more recently that he has caught fire with Scripture. And it has been a glorious thing to see. He was called to be the district leader in his, among his group of, of service missionaries. And oh, I got to teach and I got to plan devotionals and things for district meeting and I got to know my stuff. And, and it's amazing to watch him because he rejoices at God's word as one that findeth great spoil. And I mean, the other day he was in 1 Nephi 13, actually the other week, because it took him like a week to get through 1 Nephi 13. Not because he's a slow reader, but he's, he's savoring every word. And he'll be underlining things and writing stuff in his margin. It's like, Dad, did you know this verse was in there? And I'm like, well, tell me about it. Let's talk. And he's teaching me beautiful things. He's rejoicing in great spoil. And, and I'm rejoicing in watching it happen. It's one of my favorite things about teaching scripture is looking, see, watching the light bulbs come on in students' eyes and, and them discovering things in the word that just blows them away. Yeah, X marks the spot. Well, <laughs> there's X's all over the, the word. And if you look for it, you'll find great spoil. Or how about this same section from verse 165? Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Maybe that's one of the great riches of that great spoil that we find. It's great peace. Even to the point that you feel immune to the offenses of the world. You're, you're feeling the Holy Ghost with you, really. That's what it is. And safe and secure in the love of God, with His Word flowing through our minds, 
oh, what, what the world throws in our face, just, it doesn't stick. It slips right off. The world's temptations, the world's evils, in nothing am I offended if God's word is in my heart. We're getting near to the end here. This is now the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's Tav. It's another T sound. And in verse 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Well, it's okay, psalmist. Uh, we all have. So what's the prayer? Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. Heavenly Father, at the end of this long psalm, where I have been praising thee for thy word and rejoicing in, in your law and covenants and precepts and commandments, and you name the synonym, it's all the same for me. But I haven't been perfect in living it. I am sorry for that. It's not that I've been rebellious. I, I don't forget thy commandments. It's just that I'm weak. I am like a little lost lamb. And I hope that the good shepherd is still out there to find me, to lead me to the still waters and the green pastures, to help me navigate the valley of the shadow of death. I am grateful that we have a good shepherd who will always come running anytime we wander. His word reassures me of that. And through this 119th Psalm, it's one that's worth the time that is required of you to get through that many verses. But to leave it at that, to end with that note of humility, so much of it has been exultant and so grateful for the word of God. And I'm going to live it and I'm going to hold on to it. Yes, I want to. But sadly, I don't always succeed in doing it. No wonder we are left with that reassurance that God will seek us and bring us home. I want to pause here for just a moment before we get to our second half of today's or this week's lesson and just ask you, in the spirit of the, this grand acrostic, what are your ABCs of praise? If you had to spell it out, in fact, more specifically, if you had to write an ode to the Word of God, since that's what Psalm 119 is. Those of you who have spent this year with me, we've spent amazing amounts of time in God's Word. Uh, rejoicing in the great spoil that's there, seeing the lamp that it provides to our feet. I... I hope that you have testimonies to, to bear for every letter. And that from A to Z, from Alpha to Omega, you are coming to know him who calls himself the Word of God. I'm grateful for him. And I seek to praise the Word, capital W, for all the lowercase w words he has given us throughout the scriptures. Now, to go from Psalm 119 to Psalm 120, how do you follow the longest chapter in the, in the book? How do you follow this, in, this grand acrostic, uh, the Alpha and Omega of the Word of God? Well, perhaps we do it by committee. 
because Psalm 120 begins a series of 15 psalms of ascent. They're also known as songs of degrees, and you'll see that in the superscription of each of the next 15. So Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. Psalms of degrees or psalms of ascent, the idea here is that they were probably sung by pilgrims coming up to Jerusalem. And by up, I mean up, literally. Uh, they're in the, the mountain of the Lord and ascending the hill of the Lord and coming up to Zion. And as they're ascending, they are singing these songs of ascent. Uh, there's a crescendo that you can nat naturally envision as you go through these psalms. And so we'll go through them quickly. But to imagine singing your way heavenward, this is a great place to envision it. Psalm 120, verse 7, for example. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. These are my first steps out of the wicked world. And I'm trying to be different from them. They are for war, but I'm not. I'm trying to leave that. I mean, that's the valley of the shadow of death. That's the low point of human nature where we are dog-eat-dog -dog fighting one another, destroying one, one another. And if we are for war, then we have not yet ascended to God's place of peace. So first steps out. I am for peace. Be different. I've often told my kids that it usually takes two people not paying attention to have an accident. And if one person is paying attention, they can usually compensate for the person who isn't. So be that one, please. Now, that doesn't always work. Sometimes you can be trying and the other person is just so good at causing an accident, you can't avoid it at all. And the same is true of conflict, I suppose. But in terms of it usually taking two people to, come, to cause friction, but it can typically be avoided if one person refuses to descend into it. I get that sense of this first psalm of ascent. I'm going to st step up and away from the kind of friction that occurs down below. I will be for peace. Next step, 121. This is a declaration of trust. And in verse 1, the psalmist says, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. Doesn't Fräulein Maria say that in The Sound of Music at some point? As the family is going to climb the Alps to ascend out of Austria? Again, this second psalm of ascent. I love the thought that, okay, I look down at a wicked world and the war that prevails there, and I've got to get out of here. I'm for peace. So let me step up. And in the stepping up, may I look up as well and behold the hills from whence cometh my help. Later in verse 4, this beautiful phrase, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Now, no wonder he can always be trusted because he's always at the ready. It's like first responders that change their sleep habits so that they're, they're always poised and ready to come to your aid. God never sleeps on the job. That's good to know. Uh, when Mendelssohn wrote his great oratorio, Elijah, he took that verse and changed it only slightly to make it more, even more poetic. The name of one of the songs is, He watching over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. Oh, those are words worth hiding in the heart, knowing God is there for you. 
Our third step upward is Psalm 122, a song of Zion, in which it begins, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I mean, that's what we're climbing for, after all. Uh, if Jerusalem is at the high point, what's at the high point of the high point? The temple of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord. And I was glad when somebody said, let us go in. Notice it wasn't, yeah, why don't you go ahead? No, it's let us go. So much better than sending something to the, someone to the temple is bringing someone with you to the temple. After my sister was endowed, same day as myself, uh, we were both pretty confused by our first experience, but I'm used to confusion. I'm okay with it. <laughs> and so I was just excited to overcome it and keep learning. I wanted to go back. But my sister, who hasn't spent as much time confused as I have, uh, she's always on top of things. And so hers was more of a negative experience because she didn't understand what was going on. And that was a new experience for her. I'm grateful for an inspired roommate who said to her shortly thereafter, let us go into the house of the Lord, just like this 122nd Psalm would. And my sister was like, oh, no, I'd love to. Not really. Uh, but I was a little busy, and her roommate just wouldn't take no for an answer. Just come, please. And that's all it took for her was a second experience to overcome the unfamiliarity of the first. So, yes, bring them. Don't just send them. Or verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. I'll take that last phrase, since I do love Jerusalem. <laughs> I hope that that will allow me to prosper spiritually. But to pray for its peace, oh, there's a place deserving of those kinds of prayers. It needs them. I am for peace, we saw in the first step upward. Well, now as we're climbing higher and higher, we're getting closer to that scene of unfortunately, so much discord. Because Jerusalem is sacred space to three different religions, oh, the holiest place for Christianity, the holiest place for Judaism, the third holiest place for Islam, who, no wonder that's been the site of the Crusades and all kinds of conflict, religious, political, territorial, Oh, Israelis versus Palestinians, Jews versus Muslims, you name it, what that place has been through. I've seen bumper stickers pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and we, we should be, because it means something more than just for Jerusalem. If, can you imagine if Jerusalem were at peace, what would that mean, not just for Jerusalem, what would it mean for Christians, Jews, and Muslims? It would mean that we have come to understand one another and respect one another and coexist with one another despite very deep differences as far as the source of, of the Spirit in Jerusalem. It's so interesting. I remember reading a book about the challenge when diversity and devotion come in contact. It's one thing if you have devotion but no diversity. Because then it's like, hey, we all feel really strongly about this, but we all agree, so we're good. It's another thing if it's all diversity and no devotion. Because then it's like, hey, we don't agree with each other, but we don't care about our differences anyway, so no big deal. But if you're devout and diverse, ooh, that's dangerous. Because now we feel differently. We feel deeply about things we feel differently about. And, and that's Jerusalem. 
how, how how do we avoid that kind of powder keg? Well, as these sociologists of religion studied, the pl places where there has there is high diversity and high devotion, and yet a lack of conflict as a result, it's because people have come to know each other. And if we know people personally who believe differently than we do, it's hard to demonize them. It's hard to dehumanize them. We know them too well. We love them too much. And we can understand where they're coming from. We can agree to disagree without becoming disagreeable. In other words, we can live at peace one with another. And when Muslims, Jews, and Christians can do that, then Jerusalem will be at peace. And since there's Muslims, Jews, and Christians all over the world, then the world will be at peace too. Uh, and not just for those three religious communities either. I think there's a great symbol there. If, if there can be peace in Jerusalem, there can be peace anywhere. And no, then again, no wonder it will take the coming of the Prince of Peace to make sure that happens worldwide. Next Psalm, fourth step upward. Psalm 123, a plea for mercy. Verse 2, Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God, until that he have mercy upon us. Imagine being a good and faithful servant. One that is proactive, that has initiative. One that loves their master or mistress so much that they're just always looking for ways to anticipate their commands, to anticipate their will and, and fulfill it even before they're asked. Sounds a lot like section 58 of the Doctrine and Covenants to me, that, you, that wise servant, servants, the, the unslothful kind, don't have to be commanded or compelled in all things. They know that the power is in them. They are agents unto themselves. They bring to pass much righteousness. And that's what we're hoping for in the 123rd Psalm. That if we are looking to the Lord the way a wise servant looks to its master, what can I do to please him? That is a step in the right direction. The next one appears in 124. Here's our fifth song of ascent. And this one's interesting. Verse 7, Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken. We are escaped. We saw some hints of that concept back in the 119th Psalm. But here in the 124th, to be delivered from traps and from snares that we've flown into ourselves, the consequences of our own poor decisions, and yet God frees us from them because of his mercy, Psalm 125, then, is the sixth song of ascent. And in verse 2, As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people, from henceforth even forever. Oh, as one having Waldensian ancestry, I can't help but think of, For the strength of the hills we bless thee, when I read the 125th Psalm. Because the Waldensians were surrounded by the Alps, and it protected them from the armies of enemies who were trying to rob them of their faith in God and force them to recant and, and rejoin the majority religion. When Lorenzo Snow and his companions climbed those same alpine mountains 
and found the Waldensians there, surrounded by their mountain home. They told them, wow, this really reminds us of Utah, because the mountains have protected us as well. And we feel safe there among the mountains of the Lord. And as they shared the gospel with the Waldensians, and it resonated with them far more than among any other group of people in Italy, it was among them that these converts came and went from one mountain home to another. Next time you sing hymn 35, for the strength of the hills we bless thee, know that it didn't start with the Latter-day Saints. It started with the Waldensians, but the, the Latter-day Saints resonated with it too, and we still can. Psalm 126 is next, our seventh step upward. Verse five and six, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. How's that for a reversal of the law of the harvest? <laughs> we're not reaping what we sowed. We're reaping something infinitely better. We sowed in tears. Now we're reaping in joy. And keep reading. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. That verse is so true of missionary work. It's so true of serving others. It's so true of repenting of our sins. Maybe most of all, it's so true of parenthood. Because what we sow in tears, we reap in joy when all is said and done. We have tried and we're the servants in the allegory of the olive tree. And we're digging and dunging and we're planting and pruning and we're weeping and wishing and hoping and praying that our work will come to something, that investigators will listen and pray and gain testimony of their own and come into the kingdom of God. We're weeping over our sins and just hoping for better days of forgiveness on the other side of repentance. And like I said with parenting, oh, there's all kinds of tears that come with raising children. But if we weep, but water precious seeds with those tears, then the day will come that we will rejoice with sheaves upon our shoulders. That is such a beautiful promise, and it's one that we need to be banking on, especially if we're still in the tears phase. Know that the joy will come. Psalm 127, our eighth step upward. This one, according to the superscription, is a song of degrees for Solomon. So we're shifting from David to Solomon in this one, and it's a prayer for the house of the Lord, as well as the house of David, the family. Verse 1, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. I love that verse. If God isn't part of the construction crew, then yeah, I don't know if this building is going to stand the test of time. If we talk about self-discipline, for example, and I worry that the self is, is misplaced because real discipline will only come through real discipleship. And it's the Lord that gives us the power to discipline ourselves. When we talk about self-improvement, again, I worry that we put too much emphasis on self. Not just that it's the self that we're trying to improve, but it's the self that's doing the improving. No, 
any improvement worth its title, it's not going to be self-induced. It's going to come from God. And unless he's a part of it, then we're laboring in vain. Real progress must involve the Lord. So turn to him. Anytime you have cracks in the foundation, for example, make sure the Lord is part of that reconstruction project. Or how about verse 3 through 5? This one's beautiful, especially for those with families of your own. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Sadly, I sense the world trying to reverse this and trying to shame those with big families into thoughts that they're doing something wrong. What, are you trying to overpopulate the, the planet? Somebody once said that to Sister Oaks, and she simply responded with all the confidence in the world, well, I can't imagine anyone better to do it. <laughs> There's someone happy with a quiver full of children. I taught with a colleague who had 13 kids. They named their youngest Baker because he was the baker's dozen. And that, this mother and father, whom I know well and look up to, they, they rejoice in their quiverful. In my current ward, there's a wonderful family that, that has so many children. Uh, and, and, it, and they rejoice in it. I know that they're at times at their wits end. How could they not be? Okay. Uh, it's, it's a fairly young family with, with all kinds of, in fact, we have two families that, that are similar in size and, and similar in spiritual strength, similar in attitude of rejoicing that the Lord has blessed them with such a heavy quiver. Now, yes, it's heavy, but there is so much joy that comes as a result. I think too often the world sees, I'll put it this way, family life involves both blessings and burdens, both rewards and responsibilities. Unfortunately, the world only emphasizes the burden side. And sometimes, unfortunately, we only emphasize the blessing side. Uh, and that, unfortunately, I think, lulls people into a false sense of, oh, it's easy for them. No wonder they do it. No wonder they have lots of children. It's not easy for me, and so I'm justified in not, not even trying. Now, I'm not trying to establish an ideal family size. Uh, only you and your spouse and the Lord can decide on that. I am grateful for my quiver and the children that are in it. When we found out we were having child number five and went to the doctor, the doc by then my wife had discovered she had a, a blood disorder that made clotting more likely, and that's one strike against you, and being pregnant is an automatic strike against everyone, uh, every woman, as far as blood issues are concerned. And so with two strikes, uh, her pregnancy was deemed a high-risk one, and the doctor said, oh, you're pregnant, okay. Um, is this your first pregnancy? We, we just moved to, t we were in Tennessee, and so we didn't have our old doctor that had delivered most of the kids here in Utah. But my wife said, no, this is my fifth. And the doctor just jaw dropped, like, there's no way you should have five children. Um, how many miscarriages have you had? And my wife said, none. 
And again, the jaw dropped even lower, and the doctor said, that's a double miracle, that with your situation, that you have any children at all, and that you've never lost any. Every one of your children is a miracle. Be grateful for them. And we are. As I gave my wife a shot in the abdomen every day of that fifth pregnancy, and we thought back to our previous four pregnancies where ignorance was bliss, and we didn't know that all four of those were high risk as well. But somehow the Lord blessed us. Uh, my wife comes, I come from a family of six kids, and my wife comes from a family of ten. And originally we had envisioned a larger quiver with more arrows. But knowing what we were up against, <laughs> finally by the end, we're grateful for the arrows God has, has placed upon our back. And yes, sometimes they weigh heavy on us, but they are a source of so much joy. They are truly a heritage of the Lord. And if anyone on earth needs to step up and defend the blessing of family life and the blessing that little children are, it ought to be the Latter-day Saints. We need to recognize what we've been given and, and vouch for the reward and the happiness that comes from children. I feel strongly about that. Now that was our eighth step heavenward. Our ninth comes in Psalm 128, and it's a song of blessedness. It sounds a little like this, verse 4. Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children, and peace upon Israel. We're starting to combine elements of songs we, we were singing at lower elevations and to combine peace in Jerusalem with the joy of posterity, children's children. I'm a grandparent now. Well, I'm not yet. But from what I hear from my parents and from friends that are already grandparents, oh, it's the, <laughs> it's, it's the, good, li it's the good life. Uh, all the joy and none of the responsibility. It's all blessing, no burden. Or, or at least <laughs> they're more out of balance, right? Uh, and to move to that point, oh, beautiful, beautiful song to sing. And to see the good of Jerusalem. I mean, we're about halfway up, these 15 songs of ascent. And so as we get closer and closer to our destination, oh, I want to rejoice in a peaceful place all the days of my life. The tenth step upward is Psalm 129, a prayer against Israel's enemies. We see in verse 2 through 4, Many a time have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. But the Lord is righteous. He hath cut asunder the cords of the wicked. I mean, this is strong imagery. Can you imagine feeling that your enemies were plowing you and the furrows were running deep along your back? Well, as, as graphic as that imagery is, hopefully it paints an equally powerful picture on the other side since the Lord made sure they did not prevail. That's, that's something to hold on to as well. Maintain your trust in God no matter what the world is throwing at you. You're almost there after all. Just keep climbing. 
Our 11th step in Psalm 130 is a prayer for rescue. Maybe it's we're trying to avoid or overcome the enemies in 129, and now please God rescue me from them in 130. In verse 3 and 4, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. Maybe the enemy we're trying to be rescued from is ourselves. Our own lesser selves, that is. Because as, we, as the psalmist recognizes here, if God's keeping track, nobody's going to make it. Who shall stand if the Lord is marking our iniquities? But that's when he realizes that second half, there is forgiveness with him. There are multitudes of mercies in him. That parental patience with us. He knows our flesh. He knows our wind. He knows what we're made of. So there's no need to justify ourselves. He can justify. Better yet, he can sanctify us. If perfection is required, yes, no one's going to make it. But God is merciful. And we can count on that. In Psalm 131 then, our 12th step heavenward, this is a childlike declaration of trust. And you'll see the child in the metaphor that's drawn. Verse 1 and 2, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Can you sense the humility here? Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. I know my place. I'm content with it. And then the metaphor. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. So I guess it's a simile, not a metaphor. My soul as a weaned child. I've behaved and quieted myself as a child that's weaned. Well, if I've behaved and quieted myself, it suggests that before I did that, I wasn't very quiet. And I wasn't behaving very well. Which sounds pretty true to form if a child has not yet been weaned and they're hungry. If they rely completely on mother to be able to meet their physical needs, anytime they need it, they just cry out for it and they tend to get it pretty quick, right? And yet a weaned child, on the other hand, has developed at least some measure of independence. They no longer are convinced that all it takes is me to cry and then it's gonna, I'm going to get whatever I've been crying for because that's the only way to stop the crying. No, there's something beautiful here about developing that sense of patience and trust and, like I said, a measure of independence. That if God is not meeting my every need, at least all of my perceived needs, and not doing it on my timetable, then hopefully we're no longer the, the crybabies that are demanding immediate attention. No, hopefully we have the humility not to make those kinds of demands and we quiet ourselves and behave a little better. That's part of growing up in God. That's a good step upward. Our next, the 13th, is Psalm 132, and this is a royal psalm, hoping for the king's return to Zion. If that's a lowercase king, then it's a Davidic psalm, and if it's capital K king, then it's a messianic psalm. Take your pick, they both apply. But how about verse 4 and 5 as our, as our glimpse? I will not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to mine eyelids 
until I find out a place for the Lord and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Remember David wanted so desperately to build God a house, but was not able to do so? Still, he found the right spot for it and started amassing the materials. We can do something similar if we will prioritize the place of God in our lives. If we can decide to meet God's needs before our own, for example. And if we have a God who slumbers not nor sleeps, maybe we can do a little bit more to be like him. And like we saw earlier, wake up in the middle of the night to give him gratitude. Or stay awake long enough to truly give him his due on a daily basis. Psalm 133 is our 14th step. It's a song of Zion, a song of unity. And in verse 1 we read, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. Now I know that kings and priests are meant to be anointed. That sure sounds like a lot of oil. If it's dripping down Aaron's beard all the way to the skirts of his garments. Or does that simply mean that, oh, every hair of his head, numbered by the Lord, is anointed with that holy oil. That the skirts of his garments, that those garments are anointed by the holy oil as well. Well, either way, what's he really getting at? This is a metaphor for unity. And I love that unity is compared to this ointment of oil. Because oil lubricates things. And if it's one thing that <laughs> relationships require, it's the lubricant of love. It's meant to eliminate or at least diminish friction that always seems to be inherent in relationships. And the closer the relationship, the more potential for friction there is. So if our brethren are meant to dwell together in unity, oh, then pray for the anointing oil yourself. And if we can take some of that, I mean, Gethsemane is the, oil, the olive press. If we can take some of that gift of grace from the Lord, then maybe we'll have some oil dripping down our beards too. And we'll be able to get along with each other. Our 15th and final Psalm of Ascent, 134, we end with blessing. We finally made it. We have ascended the hill of the Lord, and here we are. And what will we sing? Look at verse 2. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary. You made it. And bless the Lord. You're here. You're at the Temple Mount. Raise your hands heavenward. If you've ever been to Philadelphia and climbed the steps at the Art Museum and seen the Rocky statue with hands <laughs> outstretched. He made it. He ascended all the steps. And yes, it took quite a, quite a fight and, and, and a run to make it. If we're going to ascend the hill of the Lord, then yes, I think we'll have arms outstretched that we finally made it to the top. But we're not done yet with the book of Psalms. We still have 16 left. And they're beautiful. The 135th is a hymn of praise to the God of Israel. I'll just read verse 4. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself, and Israel for his peculiar treasure. That's that segula word that we saw back in Exodus 19, 
even before the Ten Commandments come, what's his goal? To create a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a peculiar treasure that God can claim as his own. And that's, that's what we're trying to become. I mean, it took you 15 psalms to ascend. You're here now. Can, can I claim you? Will, will you be mine? If we choose to be his, then we'll rejoice in that possessiveness. You get a sense of that in the 136th Psalm, which is a beautiful one. This is probably another one of those kind of call and response sort of uh, hymns. Because every one of this Psalm's verses, there's 26 of them, and they all end with the same chorus. For his mercy endureth forever. Can you picture a priest chanting or singing the line and then the people responding? Like, here's a blessing, for his mercy endureth forever. And what about this, for his mercy endureth forever. And I just love the, the this one feels participatory, that I just want to shout out alongside everybody else. And the moment I recognize, or somebody points out to me the hand of God somewhere in my life or in theirs, I just want to rejoice alongside them. So just a, a little hint, here's the first three of these 26 verses. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. And then the response, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods. And the response, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. And I could just picture a crescendo as this chorus expands and more and more people just gather and come in and want to raise their voices in the same words of, of praise. His mercy endureth forever. And it never runs out and he never gets tired of it. That he's here for the duration. And as the heaven is higher than the earth and the east is nowhere touches the west. This is a God who delights in forgiving his children. That's why he sent his son to make that all possible. The 137th Psalm then gives us an abrupt change of mood. And we go from the rejoicing of 136 to the lamentation of 137. This is a sad psalm. As we picture the, the Jews captive in Babylon, what's there to sing about here? We had our 15 psalms of ascent to climb to the mountain of the Lord. Well, what about being dragged down into the wicked world and being captive in Babylon? Verse 1, by the rivers of Babylon where we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. How would the Jews have felt about their homeland when they, they couldn't return to it? I have sometimes referred to what I call celestial homesickness. Times where we realize, well, it's like in the hymn, uh, Oh, My Father, when we realize that I am a stranger here. We've seen some psalms already today that speak of being strangers or pilgrims, and the psalms become the soundtrack to our pilgrimage back home. But man, when I'm stuck far away from God, sometimes it's hard to feel like singing. And that's the case of the Jews there by these rivers of Babylon. In verse 2, we hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. If they're willows, I wonder if they're weeping willows. 
because the Jews around them were weeping themselves, hanging their heads as well as their harps. And here's why. Verse 3, For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How did the Jews respond to that? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? The Jews must have been famous, must have been known for their psalms and their singing. And the joy and mirth, the rejoicing that came along with that praise. Because now that they're oh, captives here in Babylon, we can make them do whatever we want. Work for us, serve us, oh, even sing for us. Sing, chant, rejoice, dance, do whatever it is that you did back in Jerusalem, but do it here in Babylon. And that's the hard part. In Jerusalem, we had things to, to sing about. We had things to rejoice over. But in Babylon, that's not the case. How could we possibly sing songs of joy during times of sorrow? Well, in some ways, I well, first of all, I completely understand where the Jews are coming from. And not, this is no place to sing those kinds of songs. But on the other hand, I wonder if the Babylonians might inadvertently have been doing the Jews a favor by asking them to try. Because there's something about song to soften and soothe. There's something about music to bind the broken heart. I mean, why else would we sing Come, Come Ye Saints during a pioneer trek? And should we die before our journey is through? Yeah, that does sound like a happy day. But on the other hand, it gives you courage and strength and it does keep you going. Pioneer children did sing as they walked and walked and walked and walked, right? And it honestly it reminds me of John Taylor in Carthage Jail. When Joseph turns to him, knowing that John had the best voice of the group, and says, John, will you sing for us that beautiful song, that hymn, A Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief? Now more than ever, it seems appropriate. And now more than ever, I could use a shot in the arm like only music can bring. Do you remember John's response initially? He said to Joseph, I, I just can't. I, I don't feel it. How could I sing a song like that at a time like this? And Joseph, what did he say back? John, just begin. Just begin singing, and the spirit of the song will come. And it did. He ended up singing it twice. There's something powerful to realize that we don't have to be at the mercy of our emotions. And I don't feel like it, so I can't do it. Well, reverse it. Do it, and the emotion may come. That was the case for John Taylor. And it can be the case with us. And music can play a big role in that. Now, the, the psalm goes on, though. There's sorrow at the beginning. There's conviction in the middle. And then there's brutality at the end. This is a rough psalm. Here's the middle section, verse 5 and 6. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, now that I'm stuck here in Babylon in captivity, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Now, I love that part of the psalm. That conviction, that desire, I'm, I'm an Israelite, I'm not a Babylonian. 
uh, even to the point of, I'm, I refuse to even sing the songs of Zion here by these rivers of Babylon. You're not, you're not worthy of that kind of music. But here's the challenge. Did they keep singing that? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, cut off my right hand, if I'm not using my tongue to sing praises to Zion, then what's my tongue for? Jerusalem will be prioritized and prized over any other joy, even my chiefest. But if that's the case, why in Ezra and Nehemiah did it take so much arm twisting to get Jews to come back home to Jerusalem? That's the part that doesn't make sense. Why didn't they come rushing home? Well, it'd been 70 years. And that's long enough that only the old timers remember life back in Zion. For the rest of us, this is all we know. And it's not all bad. You can eke out a comfortable existence, even as servants to the Babylonians. I mean, you sing them a few songs and keeps them happy and they, they keep us happy. I don't, it's interesting to think, I'll, I'll just put it this way. Are there times or places in our lives where we, where we have had profound spiritual experiences and we swear in that moment we will never forget them? But does it hold true what President Irene once said, that great faith has a short shelf life? And do we sometimes end up forgetting those waters of Mormon and leaving them behind and not remembering them the way that we swore we would when we were in the midst of the glorious experience itself? I think we need to be a little more careful about getting comfortable in Babylon. Ah, I do pray that we will prefer the city of God over any of the lesser joys that the world is offering us. The kingdom of God or bust, they would paint sometimes on the side of their wagons, those pioneers. We're leaving the world behind, even though it was easier back there in some areas. Because we've got a city to build, and we cannot, must not forget Jerusalem. And then how does this psalm end? In many church liturgies that go through the psalms, they skip the end of the 137th because it is brutal. But please understand that this is an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth culture that has just been uprooted from the land of their birth, their homeland, their promised land. They are being captive to the Babylonian Empire and they are, they are bitter. And you can sense it here. They're angry not only at their enemies, but at any of their former friends that became enemies along the way. Verse 7 through 9, brace yourself. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it. And that's not raise as in build up. That's raise as in tear down, demolish, break down the walls of Jerusalem, tear the temple down stone by stone. The Edomites were saying that. Edom, that's Esau. You were brother to Jacob. You were supposed to be on our side, but you joined the Babylonians. They said, raise it, raise it, even to the, the foundation thereof. And, they, and this is how the Jews respond. O daughter of Babylon, 
who art to be destroyed. Happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Oh, I, I warned you to brace yourself for that. To take their children and... I can't even finish the thought. This is enforced empathy. This is do to them what they did to you. This is take out your bitterness and frustration upon enemies that were supposed to be your friends. Like I said, this is an eye for an eye culture. And they're living it or dreaming of it and hoping and praying for it. Oh, far from a song of Zion, this is anything but. This is a Babylonian funeral dirge and they're hoping to sing with mirth over the death of an enemy. I am grateful that Jesus would come and change all of that and ask us to sing better songs, to love your enemy, and to pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. There are better days ahead. The 138th Psalm is next. It's a Psalm of David. It's a Psalm of thanks. And it's the first of a collection of eight Davidic Psalms. We saw well, midway through last week the end of the Psalms of, of David. Well, not quite. And others must have been collected after the fact or written and then attributed to him. Here's the first of eight. I'll just show you verse 2 and then verse 6. Verse 2, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Notice it's both loving kindness and truth. There's a set of contraries that needs to be proved. There's the justice and the mercy. And we saw the, the righteousness and peace kiss each other last week. Well, there's still a match made in heaven. Uh, the worship is toward the temple. That's an important detail. They're aiming for the house of God, which is something David always did. Or verse 6, Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knoweth afar off. Interesting role reversal from what we're used to. The world only seems to have you know, respect and esteem for the, the lofty. They don't have the time of day for the lowly. But the Lord feels differently about things. Think about the story of Zacchaeus in the New Testament, for example. This short little tax collector. Everybody looked down on him for more reasons than one. And yet, what does Jesus do when he sees him? He looks up to him. Well, granted, he was sitting up in the branches of a sycamore tree. So, yes, Jesus would have to look up. But, again, he looks up in more ways than one. And he, he raises Zacchaeus in the esteem of his fellow Jews, which is a beautiful thing. He lifts the lowly. Jesus always does. Psalm 139 is next. It's the second of our eight Davidic Psalms in this section. It's a plea for guidance. And notice what they're praying for in verse 7. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. That is... I don't think he's trying to run. It's like, I just can't get away from you. 
I tried heaven and you're still there. I tried hell and you, you came down and dragged me out of it. No, I don't think he's trying to escape. This is not someone hiding from God. This is someone hoping that God wouldn't hide from him. And he's grateful that no matter where he wanders, he's not outside the redeeming reach of God. That's important to realize. To the uttermost parts of the sea. Oh yeah, he'll find you there. Or verse 14, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. I often heard my evangelical friends in the South quote that verse of the Psalms. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's not meant to be spoken out of pride, but simply out of gratitude that God makes amazing stuff. And that includes even me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Do we appreciate our bodies, our minds, our talents, our attributes as gifts from God? As wonderful and awe-inspiring? That's what fearfully is all about there. Or are we dissatisfied with them and wishing that things were different? Oh, eating disorders or unnecessary plastic surgery or acting like we're disembodied spirits living in a virtual world. Elder Bednar gave a great talk about that years ago. I've made a new friend that I really admire who has spent the second half of her life in a wheelchair. Uh, far from the active, athletic, energetic young woman she was for the first 18 years of life or so. But you don't hear any complaint from her. She knows that even in her current condition, she is fearfully and wonderfully made. And she sees the hand of the Lord even in her affliction. And it's made her into somebody incredible. I hope we can recognize God's hand in, in our own creation, as well as the creation of everything else. Psalm 140, a psalm of David that includes a petition to God. I'll just read 12 and 13. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and the right of the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks unto thy name. The upright shall dwell in thy presence. Maybe that's why this friend of mine feels so close to God. She knows that God has, is pleading her cause and maintaining it, that he's upholding her right and will uphold her along with it. I think it's beautiful that God cares about things the world doesn't seem to care much about. And God's people seem to care about things the world doesn't care about much either. The upright shall dwell in thy presence. Yes, that's what we hope most for. Psalm 141, still another psalm of David. This is a prayer for protection from sin. And I love the way he puts it in verse 2. Let my prayer be set before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now, incense and sacrifices were part of Israelite worship, right? And incense, I love the connection. Let my prayers be like incense. Well, that's fitting since incense was meant to represent the prayers of the saints. The smoke is ascending to God just like our prayers are. 
it's giving God a sweet savor and, and the, the smell of our, of our offer of our prayers is meant to be a sweet thing for God as well. And then evening sacrifice, I'm giving something to God. Well, in this case, the lifting of my hands is like raising up this gift to God. And what am I giving him this time? Well, the animal in me or the broken heart and a contrite spirit. What I love about this is it's as if God is accepting the will for the deed, or at least the psalmist is praying that that be the case. Let my prayer be, be just like incense. And if, even if I have no animal to offer you, may the lifting of my hands be my own evening sacrifice. Oh, you sisters that don't hold priesthood office, are your prayers of faith any less effective than a priesthood blessing? I don't think so. And so may your prayers be like incense. May your... May your, the lifting of your hands and heart be no less worthy of acceptance by God than, than an animal sacrifice there at the, at the altar of sacrifice before the temple of God. I think there's something powerful here. I think also there's a suggestion that the psalmist sees past the symbol to what it really represents. And we ought to be doing that too. It was never about incense alone. Yeah, this is prayer. And I am lifting my voice until it reaches the heavens. It was never about animal sacrifice. No, it's broken hearts and contrite spirits. It's giving the all of me over to God. In verse 3, he asks for a different blessing. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. That's a great prayer to memorize if your mouth is what gets you in trouble. Remember we saw that prayer, or we saw that phrase in Job that I have made a covenant with mine eyes, how then can I look upon a maid? If your eye is the, is the problem child in your, in your body, then, then memorize that verse. But if your tongue, if your mouth is the problem child among your members, then this is a good verse to, to memorize as well. Oh, Father, please keep the door of my lips. Keep the door shut when, they, when it should be shut. <laughs> okay, and, and set a watch on my mouth because... Sometimes it goes a-wandering, and it shouldn't. In verse 4, incline not my heart to any evil thing. So please don't let it lean in the wrong direction. To practice wicked works with men that work iniquity. So please be careful with the company that I keep. Help me steer clear of evil influences. And let me not eat of their dainties. That's a great word. The book of Revelation uses that word when it describes Babylonian fare. Oh, delicacies and dainties and delicious things that it's using to try to incline my heart away from God. I've got to be careful with that. And then in verse 5, interesting prayer here. Let the righteous smite me. It shall be a kindness. Let him reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil, which shall not break my head, for yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. The ending's tricky. Other translations say, still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. And that makes a little more sense. But the beginning, <laughs> let the righteous smite me. Oh, it'll be the kindest thing they could do. Really? Well, if they're righteous, then that smiting is for my good, right? They're probably trying to smack me to get my attention. That's probably what it is. They're not doing it to hurt me. Not if they're righteous. 
That's especially true with God, who is all righteous. When he smites us, it's not to vent frustration. It's not. No. Remember what we saw earlier about the affliction, and it turned me around. Well, if we got that kind of constructive criticism, if we got the reproof from the righteous, then yes, that's education, not condemnation. That's a hard saying that's meant to help us. And especially if we're trying to avoid evil, like we saw in the previous verse. If you see me headed down the wrong path, then by all means, smack me outside the head. <laughs> okay, smite me and it will be a kindness. That's oil. And the oil will, again, the lubricant of love, it'll help us, it softens the blow. And I know you're doing that out of, out of love and kindness for me. We can trust that that is the case with God. Uh, Psalm 142 is next, a prayer for God's help. Uh, the superscription calls it a masculine of David, which is another one of those strange Hebrew words that suggests something that they understood that we don't quite. Yeah, this was part of his prayer when he was in the cave. So we saw a few of those in previous weeks, but here's another one. Picture him wondering, what do I do with the Lord's anointed who's not acting very anointed anymore? Well, how's this? Verse 1 and 2. I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. This sounds a little like what we saw with King Hezekiah when the Assyrians were bearing down on Jerusalem and he gets the letter with all of the smack talk from Sennacherib. And what does he do? He asks Isaiah for counsel and then he goes to the temple and lays out the letter before the Lord. And we talked about that as a great metaphor of just laying out your problems to the Lord and letting him see and expressing how you feel about it and what you're up against and what you're going through and, and the help that you need from him. That's what David's doing here. He's, he's not even begging Saul for, for mercy because the real mercy isn't going to come from Saul. Just like the real deference isn't going to Saul, it's going to God, and it's only passing through Saul because Saul happens to be God's anointed at the time. I love the phrases here. I poured out my complaint. I showed God my trouble. And he, he saw me through it all. He got me out of the cave, safe and sound. He brought me back into the light of the living. And all was well. What about Psalm 143? Here's a plea for divine attention. And in verse 2, David prays, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. This is like the opposite of Job's prayers, where Job was like, oh yeah, you better believe I want to go enter into judgment with God because I will be justified. I haven't done anything wrong and I don't deserve this punishment. David, on the other hand, and all the rest of us, I think this is closer to what we would say. Yeah, I'm never going to be able to justify myself, so I'm not going to take God to court. In fact, when he takes me to court, I'm just going to beg for mercy. And thankfully... I do have an advocate with the Father who knows what mercy means. Or verse 5. I love this one. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. Those are great verbs. To remember, to meditate, to muse. 
we could use a lot more of that in our scripture study, in our prayers, in our temple worship, in our just driving around or walking through nature to think a little more. Those were verbs that Joseph Smith used when he described what he did in between the visits of the angel Moroni. He marveled, he meditated, and he mused. And I have a feeling that's what convinced Moroni it was worth coming back and giving him another round of revelation. Uh, we could do a, a little bit more to pause and ponder. Psalm 144, here's a request for divine assistance. Verse 3 and 4 is worth studying. Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him? Or the son of man that thou makest account of him? Man is like to vanity. His days are as a shadow that passeth away. There was an earlier psalm that said something similar. What is man that thou art mindful of him? We're returning to that same theme. But it's interesting here that David is, is wrestling with this. We really are nothing. We're vanity. Our days are a shadow. Here today, gone tomorrow. It's amazing that you would condescend to care about our fleeting existence. I mean, speaking of David in the cave, it's a little like what David said to Saul once Saul left the cave and David could get out safely himself. He calls, calls across the intervening valley and says, Saul, why are you after me? I'm a dead dog. I'm a flea. I'm nothing. I'm not worth your time. Well, in a humble way, in, in a similar way, he's saying this to God. We are dead dogs. We're fleas. Why would you even care? But that's the beauty. The fact that God does care, despite our nothingness, suggests that to him, we're not nothing. We're everything. Back in Moses 1, we talked about a set of contraries. That when it comes to, to mere mortals, it's the dust and divinity contrary. We're both. And when it comes to God, it's the infinite and the intimate contrary, that he's both. In this psalm, Psalm 144, David is dwelling on the dust side of himself. God, meanwhile, is dwelling on the divinity side of David. Or to flip it, David is focused on the infinite side of God. So infinite, why would you condescend to care about us? Whereas God is more concerned about the intimate side. I'm right here with you. You're my son. The last of these eight Davidic Psalms then comes in Psalm 145. And it ends on a high note because it's another acrostic poem of praise. As we go through our ABCs, it sets the tone. Well, it climaxes, crescendos these Psalms of David that lead to the end. But then it sets the tone for the last five Psalms of the book, which are also Psalms of praise. Uh, a doxology is a technical term for a praise. Uh, it's usually a, an official kind of language set form in liturgy. So that often, I mean, there's a, dex, a doxology that we have in our hymn book. It's one of the shortest hymns in the book. And it's praise God from whom all blessings flow. By the end of it, we are praising Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And so that's a doxology. The last five psalms in the, in the book are the concluding climactic doxology of the book of Psalms. A whole book of praises. 
the, the word that the Hebrew title for Psalms is praises. That's what this book is going to be full of. Okay, here's 150 praises, although some of them are praises under a different, <laughs> with a different tone. Okay, but Psalm 145 is kind of the bridge between Davidic Psalms and now just the crescendo, climactic, collective Psalms of the house of Israel. So let's look at a few verses here. Verse 3 through 5. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. Great play on, plays on words there. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Oh, the, the adjective, the adverb, you name it. God is good. God is great. And our, our praises of God should be as great as he is. In fact, what he says next, one generation shall praise the works of God to another. Are we passing down our praise? Or the analogy I've used so many times in the past about the three shelves of Revelation past, present, and future. Shelf one is Revelation past. And to, to make shelf one an inheritance, I think is an amazing idea to pass down your praise to the next generation and let your children and your grandchildren to the thousandth generation. That's what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are, are doing, passing down to us the evidences of God's hand in their lives and giving us something to praise him for based on what they were praising him for. I see similar things that God is doing in my own life and in the lives of my children. One other verse here, verse 14. The Lord upholdeth all that fall, and that would include all of us, and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. Can I sneak in one more line from Bernard of Clairvaux? <laughs> Can you sense how much I love Jesus, the very thought of thee? In this one, what does he say in a later verse? To those who fall, how kind thou art. How good to those who seek. I get that sense from that 14th verse of the 145th Psalm. The Lord upholdeth all that fall because he's kind to them. He knows what we're made of. He remembers our diagnosis. Are you ready to finish then with these five last Psalms of praise? Our concluding and climactic crescendo. 146 verse 2. While I live, will I praise the Lord. I will sing praises unto my God while I have any being. Now do you see why Elder Maxwell would call that last book one more strain of praise? As long as I have any life left within me, I will spend it praising God. Serving him, just wishing for a jersey to play on one side of the veil or the other. Just keep me in the game, coach, please. I want to serve. I want to lift my voice. I, as long as I have breath, I want to use it in, in raising my voice in praise of God. As long as I have any being. And that's the beauty of, of praise on the other side. I suppose our mortal praise does have to end at death, but that's not true of the next life. In fact, that great line from Amazing Grace, the fourth verse, 
when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. <laughs> That's such a beautiful sentiment. I've been at this for 10,000 years. But that doesn't mean I've lost 10,000 years worth of praising. It never has to end. Oh, that's divine. Or verse 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth. In that very day his thoughts perish. Why would you put your trust in man when man is nothing? His air comes and goes. King Benjamin says that God lends us our breath. It's not even ours to claim. And so, I don't care if you're a prince. You're going to lose your crown. In fact, you're going to lose it to the prince of peace and the king of kings. And so that's where I'm going to put my trust. You're, most people, their ideas and their works don't even outlive them. Whereas God's work is eternal. In fact, his work and his glory are to make eternal things out of each of us. That's worth praising. Psalm 147 is worth praising too. This is the second of our five final uh, hymns. And this is a psalm of praise to give us hope. In verse 2, the Lord doth build up Jerusalem. He gathereth together the outcasts of Israel. Have you ever felt like an outcast? Then you're exactly who the Lord is looking for. By the way, he was an outcast too, so he knows how you feel. Or verse 3, He healeth the broken in heart, and bindeth up their wounds. Does that describe you? Have you ever felt that your heart was broken? Well, the Lord understands that as well, and has come to bind it all up. Or verse 4, He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. I mean, I'm amazed by my oldest daughter, who can look up into the night sky and name constellations. I, I've got the Big Dipper down and Orion. I think that's kind of my whole astronomical repertoire. <laughs> but she's, she's got them all. It's amazing. But I don't think she can name every star. But God can. Do you remember what he says in Moses 1 as he's showing Moses worlds without number that I have created? He says this in verse 35. For behold, there are many worlds that have passed away by the word of my power, and there are many that now stand, and innumerable are they unto man. But all things are numbered unto me, for they are mine, and I know them. This is the same God who numbers the hairs of your head. He can number worlds that are without number. He not only numbers the stars, he's named them. And as Elder Maxwell has said, that's nothing. A star is nothing compared to us. A star will eventually fizzle out, but we are eternal. And we have been placed in precise orbits exactly as the Creator has designed. And there's something worth praising Him for. Or Psalm 148, another psalm of praise. The word praise, in fact, is mentioned 12 times in this little psalm. I'll just read a few of them. Verse 1 through 3, Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise ye him, all his angels. Praise ye him, all his hosts. Praise ye him, sun and moon. Praise him, all ye stars of light. He goes on to invite heaven and earth and fire and snow and mountain and hill and plant and animal and male and female and old and young, you name it. 
Come join the song. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Alleluia. Alleluia. Yeah, he is worth praising, believe me. Psalm 149, another psalm of praise, our fourth out of five, one through three is all I'll read. Praise ye the Lord, sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise in the congregation of saints. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with a timbrel and harp. Wow, there's true rejoicing for you. And it's a new song. Like I mentioned last week, you'll never run out of melodies to invent as you describe what God has done or continues to do for us eternally. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Here's messianic psalms for you. Here's second coming rejoicing that the king of kings has finally returned and bound Satan and wiped every tear and established Zion never to be removed. However you feel to rejoice, whether you do it in dancing, then praise his name in the dance. If you do it in singing, then sing. If you do it in art, then paint or draw. If you do it in, in speech, then talk and bear witness. If you do it in service, then roll up your sleeves and bless those around you. Whatever way you can give vent to what is building and bubbling up inside you, let it be motivated by your love of God. He deserves whatever you have to offer him because he's offered and given everything to you. Which leads us to our, our final psalm. Well, let me take that back. It leads us to the Bible's final psalm. Actually, let me take that back. It takes, it takes us to the book of Psalms, final psalm. I'll try to be more specific. Because praise will keep bubbling up through the rest of the Bible. Praise is in the Book of Mormon. It's in the Doctrine and Covenants. Praise ought to be in our lips and in our hearts. Every time we ponder anew the blessings God has given us. So Psalm 150. Here's the ultimate one more strain of praise. The word itself will appear 13 times this time. It was only 12 in Psalm 148. Now it's 13 and 150. It makes me wonder, is it meant to bring us through all 12 tribes of Israel? But then to make sure that we don't feel complete there? Like, okay, everybody had their chance. We're done. We're good. We can stop praising now and get on with life. No. Let me start round two. And just give you one more kind of baker's dozen psalm and then leave you to it. To keep on going round after round of glorious praise. Let's read it all. It's worth it. He begins with the where of praise. Verse 1, praise ye the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary. There's one last look to the temple, the ultimate place of praise. And then praise him in the firmament of his power. There's in all of nature, in all of creation, we can praise God. We then turn to the why of praise in verse 2. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Again, like we've seen so many times, praise for what he's done and praise for who he is. Then the how of praise. 
verses 3 through 5. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the psaltery and harp. Praise him with a timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and organs. Praise him upon the loud cymbals. Praise him upon the high-sounding cymbals. I almost sense a symphony conductor there, waving the baton and just coaxing out different parts of the orchestra to join in this incredible crescendo until the entire orchestra is fully engaged in in this symphony. I'm grateful for so many different aspects of praise that we can offer God. I'm grateful for so many different approaches to praising Him from people of various faiths across the religious spectrum. This is harmony, not cacophony. And I pray that we can rejoice in however other people rejoice in God. We may do it differently from them and them differently from us. But to join together in that, that's that. God is the ultimate conductor. The Spirit is what is coaxing us all in, inviting us into this strain of praise. In fact, it reminds me, speaking of symphony conductors, when my wife and I were dating, she sang in the Mormon Youth Chorus, as it was called back then. In some ways, it was kind of a younger feeder system into the Tabernacle Choir. And, on a, and even in its own right, it was an amazing choir. And I would go to all of its practices, mostly just to watch one particular singer and, uh, and spend an hour with her on the drive up and the drive back home. That was our week, one of our weekly dates. And I remember one particular week, I was so swamped with schoolwork and things I had to get done that I said, I'm so sorry, I can't, I don't have time to spare. I can't go to, to practice with you. Uh, is that okay? And she said, of course, it's fine. I'll, I'll just go with the friends from the choir. So she did. On the drive back, she called me and said, Jared, you're going to hate yourself. I'm sorry to rub salt into your wound, but of all the weeks to miss, I mean, you've had practically near-perfect attendance. You probably know the songs as well as we do, though obviously you can't sing them as well. <laughs> she wouldn't have said that. Uh, but I'm like, what did I miss? And she said, uh, we had a special guest tonight, unexpected and unannounced, but President Hinckley showed up. What? President of the church at the time. And yeah, he just popped on over to Mormon Youth Chorus practice. It was right before Christmas, and we were practicing Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. You want to talk about a perfect soundtrack for this final strain of praise? There's Hallelujah. There's praise ye the Lord. And <laughs> President Hinckley did more than just come and listen in. He kind of bumped our conductor off <laughs> the stand and said, you mind if I try my hand at the baton? And President Hinckley, the president of the church, conducted us in the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. How many people in the world can say that? <sighs> she said, by the way, yeah, by the end, his arms weren't quite as moving as strong as he started. And, and when it was finally finished, he was like rubbing his shoulder and said, wow, that's a long song. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot to praise God about. But from 
prophet down to priest and everything in between to the greatest, from the greatest to the least of those that can be called saints. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. There is a God in heaven and a son he sent to earth, a spirit he sheds abroad into all of our hearts, and they're worth praising with all that we're made of. Everywhere we go, among whomever that we can associate with, praise the Lord. And that's how this, this book ends. Psalm 150, verse 6, here is our climax. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. I guess that includes me, so let's say it one more time. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye. That's the, the, the y'all, the all y'all, if you really want to get Southern. Uh, every single one of you, join in this praise. Scholars have pointed out that in most Psalms that are inviting people to join in the praise, they cut to the chase very early on and, and let you know who the audience is. This is who I'm speaking to. You particularly, I'm inviting to praise. This one reverses it and saves the, the, the grand reveal for the very end. Where do we praise? Why do we praise? How do we praise? Well, who's supposed to do it? So glad you asked. Everyone. In fact, everything. If you have air to breathe, then breathe it out in exultation. Breathe it out in praise. There are only 85 words in that final psalm. And 13 of them are the word praise. I did the math. That's over 15%. <laughs> and everything else, the other 85%, is just the who and the where and the why and the how of praise. That's what this whole book is for. Do we know who we're praising? And do we praise him in a way that reflects what we know of him and how we feel of him? Let all who have breath, everything that breathes. If I could conclude that hymn from the Israelite hymn book with this hymn from the LDS hymn book, they, they sound together in perfect unison. It's one of my all-time favorite hymns. And it's hymn 72, Praise to the Lord the Almighty. I'll read it all to you. This is an old one. This hymn itself is nearing 400 years old. I've said before, to me, the older the better, because music escaped the apostasy. And although they didn't know all restored doctrine, they knew of the God of heaven and earth, and they praised him. So may we sing it together with heart and voice. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. O oh, my soul, praise him, for he is thy health and salvation. Join the great throng, psaltery, organ, and song, sounding in glad adoration. Praise to the Lord over all things he gloriously reigneth. Born as on eagle wings, safely his saints he sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how all thou needest hath been granted in what he ordaineth? Praise to the Lord who doth prosper thy way and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy shall ever attend thee.
ponder anew what the Almighty can do, who with his love doth befriend thee. Praise to the Lord. O oh, let all that is in me adore him. All that hath breath, join with Abraham's seed to adore him. Let the Amen sum all our praises again, now as we worship before him. I am grateful that I have had times in, in loud choirs, in the MTC, for example, where missionaries would sing hymns at the top of their lungs. Or one of my favorite things about church education is seminary and institute teachers sing with, with all they've got. It's beautiful. Or being in general conference sessions when a congregational hymn allows 20,000 plus to raise their voices. And I've sung that song at the top of my lungs together with people who had breath and breathed out praise. I'm grateful for a God who deserves it. And I bear my testimony of the Prince of Praise himself, who's made possible every good thing in our lives. I pray that we can open our mouth and let our heart come through it. That we can look through our own hymn book and find the songs that resonate with our souls. That we can sing out a little louder in church. And that we can turn to music to give voice to the deepest feelings of our heart. Count your many blessings. And more importantly, count on him from whom those blessings flow. And what's the promise of that particular hymn? Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly. And together with the psalmist, and together with all who have breath, well, what will you do? And you will be singing as the days go by. <laughs>